Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. This episode of the Talent Tank brought to you by three amazing partners, Custom Splice Off-Road Recovery Equipment, Brannick Motorsports Custom Machine, and Magnitude Performance, a mass motorsports company. Enjoy. All right, all right, all right. Here we go, the Talent Tank. We are back at it, sitting down this evening with a media mogul in off-road. This guy, I love this guy. You Unmistakable, it's not Guy Fieri, but he's got the, the hair that's even better. Ian Johnson. <laughs> What's up, hey, Ian? Why? Oh, not much, man. How are you doing, my friend? Man, so you're a, a Canadian slash Tennessean. Like, how exactly is there a specific name for that? Because that would seem like almost a rare quantity. It's got to be. You know, it's the kind of the joke that I always tell everyone. I said, moving to the States from Canada was culture shock version one. You move to the South, it's like double culture shock. It took my wife probably a good year and a half before she could understand most of the people that we lived around. So we would go out to restaurants and they'd, they'd talk to her and she would just look at me and say, what did they say? I don't understand that. So it took a while for her, her ears to absorb the Southern accent. So it's yeah, like it's been you guys in Shania Twain, right? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Moving Shania to Nashville. Twain. Yep. So for those that don't know, we've got Ian Johnson. I'm going to call you a TV wrench celeb. That's that works. That, that works. And, yep owner of digital lug that's mm-hmm. a media media company that's your media company uh and you yep. guys host some host a bunch of shows but your big show is big tire garage on amazon yep and really one of the big things that you've got going now today that we just kind of rolled out of is you are uh, one of the ultra four announcers yeah you know the whole point of doing the live stream with dave like i mean i remember you know we went basically to the very first king of the hammers because back then I was involved with Crawl Magazine. So I kind of knew about the sort of top secret King of the Hammers when Dave was doing that little sneaky thing where he went on Pirate and told everyone, what if someone raced? Could you do all the Hammers trails in one day? Well, we at the time I was working with Crawl and we'd sent a photographer out there. His name was Brandon at the time. And he'd already covered it. So we already knew about it. And then the next year when it was an actual race, you know, because we had known about it and I'd met Dave and talked about it, we had said, you know, we've got to cover this thing, you know, and that we sent a crew out there completely unprepared. It was a car crash to say the least. We got a little bit of content out of it. But when Dave went all in on the live stream a few years ago, I saw him at SEMA and I just told him, I said, dude, I want to do your live stream. I think it'd be tons of fun. And uh, it really is. It's it's great group of people to work with. Love work with Miles. Love working with Ricky Johnson. Cameron Steele two years ago, last year, or this year, of course, he was racing. But it is. It's just a really, really fun time doing that live stream for that race. I have so many questions about that that we're going to kind of go into. Not at this point, but I have so many questions. So your hair. I know I just compared you to Guy Fieri, but truly Guy Fieri should be just totally jealous of your hair. It is <laughs> something else. I've heard the stories. The super behind-the-scenes story that only a few people know about me and Guy Fieri is I met Guy Fieri before he was on Food Network. So Guy Fieri his very first job in television, he did Flowmaster muffler commercials for the production company that I used to work for. And in 2004, he came through our studios, shot a Flowmaster muffler commercial and was part of the power tour with the guys from Flowmaster. And he did not have spiky hair. And he asked me when we were on the set, my hair wasn't as tall back then, but it was spiky. 
And he asked me, he's like, dude, what are you using your hair, man? It looks really cool. So I totally say to this day that Guy Fieri stole my haircut. No questions asked. I'm, I'm just claiming that. I'll put that right out here right now. Guy Fieri stole my hair. I think that's fair. I think that's only fair. I think that's a rightful claim, too. Yep, I think so. The story that I heard was, uh, I and I overheard it, but I overheard you telling it, was you saying that your son, you, you've got a son, Zach. He's 19 years old. And uh, because of COVID and everything that's going on, you just hauled him back from college. But you guys had like a thing going where he, about him being taller than you and you started spiking your hair to stay taller than him until a point. Is he taller than you today? Yeah. So I always had like spiked hair, but then he was getting older and my hair was getting a little bit longer and I was teasing him that the hair counted to my total height. I still to this day say I'm six one with the hair. He's now taller than me even with the hair at this point. But that it is part of how it started was just the fact that, you know, he was growing up and, you know, father, son, back and forth kind of thing. And once it got up there and it just sort of stuck, my wife liked it. I liked it. And, you know, you and I have talked about this a couple of times in passing is, you know, it just became a recognizable thing. And so we just left it up there. Oh, it's absolutely signature. And I leveraged off of you. I actually took pointers from you before I even got to the hammers this year by not wearing, well, I mean, I brought my flex fit you know, flat bill, black hats and my black hoodies because that's just the wardrobe. But, uh, I leveraged, I conjured up my inner Ian Johnson here and, uh, I got a, I, you know, wore a Stetson hat out there and it was crazy how you became instantly identifiable, but don't get me wrong. There were definitely a couple nights where I was miles and I were running around from fire pits and RVs and tents and stuff. And I just wore a hat and felt back to my normal self versus having to be like you, you're kind of like always on, and yeah, I can't do that. The the one time, if I don't want to be recognized, I just don't spike my hair. It'd be like Miles without his wrench mic. If Miles was seen without his wrench mic, nobody would know who Miles was. <laughs> I don't know about that. He's, <laughs> he, he's, he's a legend in his own mind. He is. He's a great guy. He's so, he, and he is so much, like I said before, he's so much fun to work with too. He's just probably one of the hardest working people in that live stream group as well. I've never seen anybody work so hard during, during that race for sure. His brother-in-law, which is his wife's, brother he also he call his name's Benman and he calls him his buddy-in-law because they're they're best friends plus brother-in-law he was out there at hammers this year and he brought his uh his daughter which would be miles his niece and she says oh uncle miles is just he's different out here and that's it that that's the only words for it. he's just different because he's working his ass off from sun up to sunset and then way past sunset he's on he's either up trying to learn about new guys talk to new people converse people get the backstories and just so he's on top of it, he takes it so seriously and i absolutely love that about him yeah yeah no he he works super hard and just and i mean the stuff that you don't even see because even when he's not announcing on stage we'll be on stage and when you do that live stream you've in one ear you've got race ops and then in another ear you've got the live stream trailer that's feeding you what camera they're going to cut to when they're going to commercial, all that kind of stuff. And then if you have a question, you can chime into the live stream trailer and just ask them. You can just say, Hey, what are we looking at on screen? Where, or what are we going to do next? And sometimes it's miles in the, he's like working as a producer and all of a sudden in the live stream trailer. And he's just like, Oh yeah. Hey, it's miles guys. I know who that driver is. And he just chimes in and, and just takes over in the trailer. So he'll you never know in a few years, maybe he'll be sitting in the, in the big fancy seat in that, in that little dark room. I hope so. He's definitely put in the work. He's killing it. Yep. But hey, we're not here to talk about Miles. We're here to talk about you. That's absolutely <laughs> Miles, you're out. That's right. Miles already had his turn. He absolutely did. Oh, man. So current affairs, COVID. Wow. Oh, it's crazy. And and you're like I said, you are in Springfield. No, sorry. Not Springfield. Spring Hill, uh, Spring Hill Tennessee, which is yep. 
just outside of Nashville. Yeah, so we're about an hour. The My house is about 30 minutes south of Nashville. The new shop and the studios that we built is actually in Mount Pleasant, Tennessee, which is about 20 minutes sort of southwest from there. So I kind of live in between. I live in Spring Hill, and, this, and the new shop and the new studios are built down in Mount Pleasant. So we're pretty far from – I mean, I'm an hour from Nashville Airport if I was to drive it. Gotcha. And how close are you to you guys like Woodley? Uh, Woodley, he's in Murfreesboro. So Woodley is probably about 45 minutes. Uh, the guys from busted knuckle, they're about an hour South of me. So we're kind of all about just, you know, in that little range, but an hour away from each other. I see Woodley. I'll, I'll text Woodley constantly. Cause I mean, I knew Woodley back before he raced KOH, he was on the show cause he was a rock bouncer guy and we were building a rock bouncer at the time, even though we didn't know that's what it was called. I met Woodley and my funny story from Adam Woodley is uh, he'll kill me for telling this, but it's worth telling is uh, the first time we brought Adam Woodley on the TV, he could not stitch two words together to save his life. And my producer at the time, great producer, um, he stood him on a, on a basically right beside him with a mic pack on and just said, repeat after me. And he said, say the, these words, it was 14. And then Woodley would say 14. It's an inch, inch, travel, travel. Fox shocks. And he did that for like 30 minutes. And then he goes, all right, you guys go to lunch and come back. And when he came back, he goes, here he goes, he plays this and he edited the all of Woodley together. So Woodley was like, yes, sir, this buggy's got 14 inch Fox, 14 inch travel shocks front and rear. So Woodley's first sentence on TV was 100% built by a computer. Love it. And it was great. It was great, but it it's good to see him now. When now you see him, he's doing YouTube videos for his shop. I heard him on your podcast. He's he's done so well. I'm super happy for him, and, and that's the Woodley that I remember. Is is back in that studio, couldn't and got in trouble from his grandma for swearing on TV. That I was love it. You know, <laughs> I saw I did. You brought that up. He has really tried to step up his media game, his social media game. I saw they did a just a, a spot this evening. I think it was maybe about 15 minutes, a little shop tour of what projects they had going on in his shop. But yep. was the first project he had with you guys, uh, that you guys did together, was it that cab truck? So he had built the cab truck, the Pimp and 8 Easy truck, and I was going to copy it on the show. And so I reached out to him through Pirate and I had said, hey, just an FYI, I want to copy that. I'm like, I never wanted to say to someone, just like copy it and be like, look what I made up of this things. But I was, so I reached out to him and I told him, I said, hey, listen, I'm going to copy this exact truck. Would you like to be on the show when I build it? And he was like, absolutely, I'd love to. So he brought over, he brought over the Yubicon buggy, which he that was one of his first buggies ever built, brought it in the shop and we talked about it and then talked about his Pimp and 8 Easy uh, cab truck and then we basically recreated it on the show a couple other things made a couple changes but it was a very similar build to, to his build in pimpin ain't easy that was the that was a red truck or yeah orange. it was a red s10 with yep. flames on it rockwell's four-wheel steer yeah and then i did ours was lime green but similar drivetrain uh 502 uh 4l80 I think I think on that one we did the uh, range box, uh, black box range box into a two hundred five Rockwell's front and rear, very similar build, very similar. Gotcha. So you just had to move your son back from Arizona because of COVID. Yeah. How was that? He's not happy, but so I mean it is what it is, right? You're at this point, and I think I think closing the schools is the right decision. It really is step one when you're trying to prevent the spread of any type of virus. So I think closing the schools was the right decision. He goes to the University of Arizona in Tucson. The school was super cool about it. They didn't just call up and say, come pick up your kid. He's out of school. 
they, he could have stayed if he wanted to, but you know, they were closing the gym, closing the library. He was basically be in prison because that's what a dorm room is. It's prison. Right. Um, but he's doing all of his courses online. Uh, they've made a lot of really good concessions for the kids and gave us a bunch of our money back. They gave us basically all of our money spent on the dorm back. If he stays in a dorm next year or just half back towards tuition next year. So, and he's still going to finish his first year and he's still going to get all of this stuff done. So I think they did it right. He's bummed out because he can't get a job. You know, he, he's a teenager and wants to work and wants to basically make money. You know, we sat down and it's a good life lesson for him as far as I'm concerned, because I told him, what do you do if you can't find a job? You make a job. So he immediately went out and bought $2,000 cars and went down to the local pull apart and started pulling parts off of uh, wrecked cars to put them on these cars. And he's going to flip some cars at around the $5,000 range, which I think when the economy goes bad, you know, a good, reliable $5,000 car, you'll probably sell in a heartbeat. So I think he's doing the right thing. Yeah, smart move. Growing up, did you teach him how to wrench, how to weld, how to fabricate any of those things? Or was that anything that was of interest to him? He was not a shop kid. I always joke. I say kids are like like the ultimate karma factory because whatever you aren't into, they're into. So he was a jock, 100%, no questions asked. Started playing football our very first year we moved to Tennessee. And Tennessee's kind of like probably like Texas. They take their football pretty damn serious down it's here. It's pretty serious. It's a religion. Yeah, so. He was full contact football, I think, at four years old, playing offensive line. He was a big kid for his age, so he played O-line, played center or guard always. He averaged about four sacks a game for most of his life. And uh, he, had a, he had a patented move where he would pick up the offensive lineman and throw him at the quarterback because he was always a good 20 to 30 pounds heavier than the kid lined up across from him. So, yeah, he was a football kid, football, basketball, sports, which I was never into growing up. He came out and worked on the worked occasionally in the garage. And that's actually where the name Big Tire Garage came from. We were at the house and we had a shop behind the house and then the garage that you parked your car in, obviously. I wanted him when he was about 11 or 12 years old. I said, hey, go grab me. I can't remember what it was, something from the garage. And he said, from the regular garage or from the Big Tire Garage? Because everything in the back garage had big tires on it. What a great name. That's... I was like, man, that's a pretty cool name for a shop. And I immediately went and registered the domain. And did, I was like, that's just a cool name for a shop. So that's it. So that's how it, that's how it was born. He came up with a name, didn't even know it. Wow. No, I mean, that's a, that's a great story in, in and of itself right there. How has all of this impacted your business and your ability to do your day-to-days now? I know with Easter Jeep Safari canceled, a lot of the stuff that you're doing outside of your shop is canceled. What's that doing for maybe even production that you guys have coming up? Because I think you guys are about to start shooting four-wheeler very soon as well when we were talking about scheduling this. Yeah, our four-wheeler shoot got pushed back. We were supposed to shoot in April. It got pushed back into May. So that that's affected that. Losing Easter Jeep Safari, man, that's just... I mean, I get it. It's the right decision, but talk about earth shattering news. I mean, that has never been canceled ever in the history of that event and not even a discussion about rescheduling just canceled, which I was incredibly shocked by, to be honest with you. But knowing what we know now, I definitely think it was the right decision. But aside from on the business side, it's pretty much shut down all production across everything. We've sort of changed how we shoot for our Amazon. What I'll do is I'll set up lights, set up a camera on a lockdown. I'll do a lot of just the individual shots that I need to get. And then I'll bring in maybe a cameraman for one day a week. And he'll just get a few shots here and there where I need to have the camera moving around. Marketing budgets are frozen. So nobody in our industry is spending money on anything. So that kind of dried up anything that we were doing for any companies. But we did have a few of our 
really, in my opinion, are really smart clients. They sort of leaned into this pretty hard and have started pushing us to do live stream stuff for them. Uh, we're doing live streams every Thursday for ESOP welding and cutting live streams every Friday for Yukon gear and axle, you know, just to sort of service those guys who are just guys and girls are just stuck at home and still want to learn how to work on their junk. Absolutely. No kidding. And I didn't make a big deal out of this for last week with Eric Miller. I also kind of, I glossed it. Right. But no kidding. When I about froze this show, like I about did not do talent tank after Josh Blyler came out, I about froze it and having conversations with friends and supporters and partners and all that. But, you know, I, I talked to Todd Stoffer at uh, Custom Splice. He was already on board to, to sponsor this show. And I called him. I was like, man, what if I don't do this? And he just like, he didn't lose it at me, but he was just like, why? I think that's the absolute, the wrongest thing you could do. I mean, you need to be doing this now. People need to be listening. And, and for my business, people are at home spending money because they're, they're yep. bored to some extent. I'm like, okay, okay. So then I follow that up with the guys at Magnitude Performance and then follow that up with uh, Stan and Brandon uh, Haynes over at Brannick, and all of them said the exact same thing. They're like, no, we're leaning into this. They didn't necessarily use those words, but that was the effective outcome of was lean into this. And that's cool to hear that some of your guys are doing that too. So uh, if you just take the, the coronavirus and the COVID-19 and everything out of it, the reality is, is what you have right now or what we're going to have shortly is a recession. That's what we have. And if you just roll back the clock to 2010 and look at the last recession that we had, the smart players in the game took advantage of the recession to steal some market share from people who basically froze their budgets during the recession. And I, I understand why a lot of companies, that's their first reaction is just free spending. But, you know, Henry Ford once said, stopping advertising to save money is like stopping the clock to save time. It doesn't work. And that's just the truth. And so I think this you'll see some people who not necessarily take advantage is the wrong term for it, but they will see this and realize, you know what? Yeah, everyone is scared and, you know, there's, everyone's going to deal with this differently. But at the end of the day, people still want to listen to stuff. People still want to watch stuff. And as soon as this is, we'll say, quote unquote, gone, everyone is going to be back recreating in probably one week. That's just the American spirit. That's just the way it works. You know, the minute they say, the minute they say you can go to a restaurant, every restaurant in this country is going to be full of people. So that's what you have to get ready for. I've used this analogy recently in recent weeks is the uh, slingshot. Feels like a slingshot. Feels like we're being pulled back right now. Yeah. As soon as someone says go, it's going to launch. At least, I mean, that's what I'm praying for anyway. I think that's what everybody's (laughs) praying for. But I think to to some extent, I think it's going to happen because people are going to be tired of one being told what to do. Tired of, you know, Americans aren't good at being told what to do. Being a Canadian citizen and a guest, I won't say a guest your country. I mean, I'm, I'm here for good now. You're not getting rid of me. But having a worldview of living somewhere else. And we, I talk to people who live in other countries. We have friends who live in France. We have friends who live in, in, uh, in parts of Europe. Lots of friends and family still back in Canada. And I tried to explain them. I said, that's not how America works. I said, you guys are forgetting America is its own breed of country. Number one, most states are the size of some of the countries that the, this country is being compared to. You can't compare America to a France because, you know, basically Texas is bigger than France. So that's not going to work. And just the reality of the situation, like you said, Americans aren't good at being told what to do. And 
they're a social group of people. That's just part of the nature. The minute that you tell everyone it's okay to go outside, everyone's going to be outside and everyone's going to be doing stuff again in a heartbeat. And that's just how it's going to work. And I hope that it comes sooner rather than later. And I hope that we're on the, the good side of this and everything turns out in a good light. If there's one thing this country's good at, it's bouncing back from a challenge. No questions asked. Resiliency. A hundred percent. Just yep. so resilient. Yep. So you brought up that you're Canadian. I brought up that you're Canadian, but you're Canadian. Yes. Canuckistanian, as I like to say. <laughs> Smith Falls, Ontario. Yep. Just across the, the St. Lawrence River-ish area from New York. Thousand Islands area is where I grew up. You're basically like upstate New York, but like Pretty much. a little bit yep. further I, past well, that. All the TV channels I used to listen to and all the radio stations I used to listen to basically were from Ogdensburg or Syracuse, New York. Yep, 100%. So I, in just my research, because it's what I do, I'm looking up Smith's Falls, Ontario, and there's there's some you know uh, notable individuals from there, but I could not believe that Wikipedia does not list you as a notable celeb. We need to fix that. I got to fix that. I got to get onto Wikipedia after this conversation and fix that problem. I mean, especially considered it is, it's crowdsourced. So yeah. Yeah, I, I really should probably, I'm surprised that that slipped through. I'll have to get my wife on that. I have to get her on that right away. So I'm going to go off on a little tangent and kind of fall out of order like I would normally do right now. We would normally be talking about Smith Falls and your family and stuff, but how exactly did you end up in Tennessee? Like from there to there? It's all around the TV show. So... I was in Smith Falls as a high school shop teacher, teaching high school auto shop and welding shop. And I turned on the TV and the show came on called Monster Garage. And I watched it and I thought, man, that's such a cool show. So I jumped online and I went to the Discovery Channel homepage and there was a forum. And then there was this little button that you could click to apply to be on the show. And so I did. I clicked on the apply to be on the show button. And uh, two weeks later, I got a phone call from uh, a guy's name's Joe Mulcrone. We are still very good friends to this day. Him and I text probably about once every two or three months. And he was a segment producer for Monster Garage. And he said, hey, we want to bring you down, man. This is, we want you on this episode. Come on down to the episode. So I did. Went to Long Beach, shot an episode of Monster Garage. I saw that episode. It did a big old Santa Claus parade float. Yep. Was Santa really dead? The behind the scenes story of that is we shot that literally the week of Halloween. So everyone is in like that Halloween mode, right? And so, and then Jesse shows up and he was like, oh, we'll just make Santa dead. We'll make a skeleton Santa. And the real behind the scenes story of that is that that float was supposed to be in the Rose Bowl parade. Because right. at that time, Monster Garage was like the, the highest rated show on Discovery Channel. So it was going to be huge. And they were going to put it on in the Rose Bowl parade. Three of the builders on the show were from a company that built Rose Bowl parade floats. And that was the deal. As soon as the Rose Bowl committee found out that it was a dead Santa Claus, they were thrown out of the parade. It was, wasn't going to the Rose Bowl parade. No questions asked. So it ended up in the Doodah parade in Long Beach in, instead. But yeah, it was a 24-foot folding dead Santa Claus that shot candy out of his hands type of thing. So we came. I came home from that and, and uh, was sitting at the house watching TV. We had a big party at our house for the premiere of that show. We watched it and uh, friends and family came over. A couple of my friends were teasing me. They were saying, oh, man, you, you've peaked at whatever it was. I think I was 29 at the time. He goes, you've peaked at 29. You can never do anything better than be on Monster Garage. And I said, yeah, I guess that's it. Well, it's a good way to go out. And we we're kind of teased each other. And then that, I think that Saturday or the following Saturday, I was watching Power Block. And there was a commercial for Apply to Be the next host of a Power Block television show. 
I called my buddy Joe Mulcrone and asked him if he knew the production company. And he said, yep. He said, you know, that you should try out. I'll, I'll put in a good word for you. And he emailed the producers there, let them know that, hey, you should give this guy a shot. And I flew down to Tennessee about two weeks later. There was a group of 20 of us that showed up to audition. 5,000 people applied. They brought in 20 of us. Two weeks later, I was in Tennessee making the very first episode of Extreme 4x4. Oh, we're going to dig into that because that's uh, that is some seriously cool stuff. So, so that's that's how you ended up in Tennessee from, from exactly. Canada. Yeah, that, that's what moved me to Tennessee. So I moved I moved to Tennessee. My wife stayed home. She had to finish out her teaching contract in Canada to finish the semester. I was able to get out of mine early. So she stayed home and took care of her son, who at the time was like two or three. You know, kudos to her, because when you move from Canada to the United States, you have to pack all your belongings put everything in a box. They give you a sticker to put on the box as a number on it. And then you have to list every item that's in that box, number the box and then seal it. And when it crosses the border, they open like four random boxes to check, to make sure that you're actually importing what you're saying you're importing, not bringing in a whole bunch of illegal Canadian maple syrup. And, uh, so she had to pack all those boxes by herself because I was down in Tennessee making uh, making TV and having fun. And your wife's Rhonda, right? My wife is Rhonda. Yeah, we've been married. We were married. We were married Friday the thirteenth in nineteen ninety nine. So that was so it's been a while. Twenty years. Now. Twenty plus years. Yeah, this is twenty years. So this year we went to France for our uh, our. We had a friend get married, and so we went to France this summer for a little wedding trip. It was great congratulations on 20 years that's a that's a significant number and and if you know you and looking at you i would never guess that you've been you know one married possibly to even be married 20 years but the fact that you've got a a 19 year old sonny is just even more flooring uh you're still you're young it's the canadian in me you know because when you can't you only age for half a year because you only go outside for half a year you're stuck inside in the snow and you hide from the weather <laughs> so i always tell that people i said for like 30 years of my life i only aged like half a year at a time because i only went out for like four months out of the year because i hate winter i hate winter despise it so how did you two meet uh we we're teachers so i i started my life in high school i went through an apprenticeship program uh, in canada canada's kind of like europe where in grade 10, you got to decide what you want to be when you grow up. So I finished grade 10 and you have to decide, are you going to be a tradesperson? Are you going to be a doctor or lawyer or other? And if you decide to be a tradesperson, you sign your apprenticeship papers right then and there and you start your training. So I went to school in the morning and went to work in the afternoon at a mechanic shop. And before you're allowed to call yourself a quote unquote mechanic in Canada or carpenter, bricklayer, uh, welder, any of that kind of stuff, you have to finish your trade training. In my case, to be an auto mechanic, it was 9,000 hours of on the job training and nine months worth of college uh, schooling. So I had to go to school for two months at a time and then work in between. The beauty of it is, is the government, you don't have to pay tuition to go to school. Tuition's free. And they actually paid me to go to go to college. So I didn't expect to be a teacher when I left high school. I was going to be a mechanic, but I said, I hated winter and we'd rented a cottage one summer and I was sitting at the cottage and I was like, man, I don't want to go. I don't want to go back to work because it's busiest in the summer. And I was slowest in the winter. I always got lots of time off from being a mechanic in the winter, but I hated winter. And so I thought, wait a minute, teachers don't work in the summer. I wonder if I can become a teacher. And so I researched a little bit and I could get my teaching degree because I had a mechanics license, become a shop teacher. And so that's what I did. I became a shop teacher. Uh, I had to go back, get my diploma or education diploma from Queens University and I did that in Kingston, Ontario, and then got a job at a high school in Whitby, Ontario, 
And my wife, Rhonda, at the time, she was the art teacher. And uh, we were dating. None of the students knew we were dating. But all my students kept telling me, like, they, because they were always more free with a shop teacher, right? They'd say, hey, old man Johnson, you should really hit up that hot art teacher because, you know, she's uh, – you, you guys should be going out and they didn't know we were already going out at the time. So they, then we got married like a year later. So it was all good. Ha! That is absolutely great. Stay tuned. Your talent tank isn't full yet. For the past 10 years, there has been a group of individuals working hard, pushing the limits of what's possible with suspension spring technology. Today, that group has opened some exciting new doors, stepping out with the release of their own line of premium high-performance coil over springs. Magnitude Performance Suspension is now up and running at their new complex deep in the heart of Texas, manufacturing their new line of premium chrome silicon springs right here in the USA. While the name and location is new, the crew at Magnitude is anything but, with extensive multi-genre racing application experience, including 10-plus years specifically testing, tuning, listening to, working with, and answering the needs of Ultra 4 and off-road racers alike. I'm ecstatic to have Magnitude on board as a partner of the Talent Tank, and I stand behind their products as I'm a customer of this team myself. When I was building my last race car, I reached out to now president of Magnitude, Jason Yode, about his sway bar design. He built a sway bar to the specs he calculated for my application, and it was 100% dialed in right out of the box. That almost doesn't sound real, but it happened. Proof this team at Magnitude knows suspensions, springs, sway bars, what works, what doesn't. And I haven't even mentioned their line of valve train springs. They do those as well. LS, LT, diesels, drag racing, duels, and triples, they've got them all. No more waiting around for springs to be made, back-ordered. All the while, you could be testing and tuning your vehicle and practicing your best podium pose. Magnitude has over 10,000 springs in stock. That's over 225 different lengths and rates. These guys have embraced technology with real-time inventory status on their website, so enthusiasts and competitors can order with confidence that Magnitude has the parts you need when you need them. I know I mentioned that they are in Texas. That makes me proud, but that also means they are centrally located for quick shipping to your door. No more more right coast waiting on California or left coast waiting on North Carolina. Give the team at Magnitude a call at 866-674-1516 or hit up their website, magnitudeperformance.com. Mention you're a fan of the Talent Tank or use online code TT10 and get a special 10% discount. Now, back to the show. So what when you were a mechanic, though, what was your... Uh, specialties were you good at one thing not good at others were you like when i started in the i worked in a big gm dealership in kingston ontario called uh, the name was taylor chevolds it was a huge dealership we had 22 uh techs in the back and it was a specialized dealership so you had a couple alignment guys a couple general service guys uh fuel and fuel electrical tune-up we had a sob specialist because we had a saturn and sob store but i wanted to be an engine builder because this was in the 80s and pro street cars were huge and one of the summer jobs I had was I helped my friend who had a engine building shop called Street Tech Engines in Smith Falls. And he was like the cool guy in town because he built, you know, pro street cars and pro street engines. And and uh, I wanted to be an engine guy. And to their, their credit, name was Paul Grew. We called him Lumpy. Paul pulled me aside and said, don't be an engine guy. It's, it's, it's a bad, bad specialty. You need to be a transmission guy. I was like, I don't want to be a transmission guy, Paul. You know, I just don't want to do it. He said, walk around this building and ask every single one of these mechanics if they'd work on their own transmission. And I went and talked to these guys. And these were guys who, you know, in the trade for 15, 20 years. And I'd say, would you ever rebuild your own transmission? And they'd be like, no, there's like magic fairies in there. I don't know how a transmission works. So I was like, 
that's actually a good specialty to get into. And he told me, he's like, if you become a specialized transmission and driveline tech, you can name your own price. You always have work and nobody will bother you because nobody knows what you do. So that's what I did. I became a driveline specialty, uh, transmission, transfer case, drive rear ends, uh, front axles. And it was right at the point when General Motors was introducing a lot of the electronic transmissions. And that was Paul's. He didn't tell me this at the time. He told me after I started working with him. He didn't want to learn how to deal with computerized transmissions. He didn't understand them. So he wanted out of that job and he just wanted to fix the old school transmissions. So he was basically handing all those off to me. That was my job to fix all the electronic ones. So that was my segue into being a transmission guy. And that was my specialty. Oh, that's hilarious. So at what point did you get bit by the car bug, off-road bug? Where did, where did this come in? Cause I, I know you still own your first car. I do right know that. There. Right there, <laughs> Your point. 74 Volkswagen Beetle sitting right there. Yeah, no, uh, my first car. So I always kind of like cars. I don't know why. I rem- I still remember to this day, I remember I was probably like 13 or 14 years old walking through the, we used to go shopping in town with my mom. We'd go like Friday night to the mall. She would go buy groceries and my brother and I were allowed to wander around the mall and just look at stuff and buy candy or whatever we wanted to buy. Got our allowance and spend it. And I still remember to this day walking through the magazine section of the drugstore and picking up an issue of Hot VW's magazine. And uh, I wish I knew what it was. I'd, I'd love to get a copy of it back. But anyway, so I, I remember to this day picking that up and just thinking that that bug was so cool. And I was like, that's my first car. And I bought the car without telling my dad. I had a job at a bait and tackle shop slash gas station when I was 14 years old. And I just saved my money and I bought this $500 bug uh, out of Auto Trader. Didn't tell my dad. I just bought it, brought it home and just parked it in the driveway. And the next morning I went out and it didn't start. And there was no YouTube back then. There was no Google. There was nothing. So I had found a book called How to Keep Your Volkswagen Alive uh, for Dummies. I think it was this huge, big, fat book. I just basically started working on that car And it came natural to me. And so it just felt good. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to be a mechanic because this just feels right. And that started me down that road of being a mechanic. If I'd bought a reliable Honda Accord, I probably wouldn't be a mechanic today. Yeah, fair enough, right? Because those things go like a million miles. Exactly. Was your dad into? No, all my parents were white collar. My mom was a high school. The reason I was able to figure out how to become a teacher is my entire parents' generation were all teachers. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a teacher. My uncle was a teacher. My aunt was every member of my family was a teacher. And the, the funny story about that was when I told my dad I wanted to be a mechanic, he thought I was just throwing my life away. Cause like, that's just total blue collar. He's like, I can't believe that's what you want to do. You know, you should go to university. You should be an engineer. You should do this. And cause my brother was going to university and I said, I don't want to go. I'm done school, man. I've, I've, was 12 years is like grade 12. That's enough. I'm done. I want out of this game. And I said, I, I that was it. I, I knew I wasn't meant to go to university. Once I became a mechanic and he saw that it was, he eventually admitted that I made the right decision. But then he, uh, when I was leaving, quitting my job as a mechanic to become a teacher, I didn't tell him about it. I told my mom, she helped me fill out the paperwork and stuff, but I kind of kept it from my dad. It was sort of, it was sort of like a, it was going to be a surprise for him. And I came home, got my acceptance letter to Queens University, which is a pretty prestigious university in Canada. And I said, look, dad, I'm going into the family business. I'm going to be a teacher. And he's like, why would you want to throw your wife away? You've got such a good job as a mechanic and you're going to take the most thankless profession in the world. And I'm just like, oh my goodness, 
there's no mate. There's, you sometimes just can't make your dad happy. You know, that's how it works. But in the long run, he, he once again, a couple years in, he realized, you know what? It was the right decision. And then it led to even way more than that. So I, he knew that I was never going to take a normal path anywhere in life. He's so that's how I ended up here. So, but that's just how it works. And then how have they been about you guys being, you know, you and Rhonda now a grandchild, you know, moving, moving to Tennessee, moving away from them and doing what you're doing today. Where's, where are your parents on that? So at first, I mean, when we first moved, they were, they were a little shocked. I mean, my dad, he's not a huge, like big life risk taker kind of guy. That's just, I think it's more his generation. That's just how it is. I mean, my, my father-in-law, my wife's father, he was the same way. He thought it was crazy to, you know, cause teaching in Canada is not like teaching in the United States. It's I think the third highest paid profession in the country. It's uh, you know, it's six figures plus to be a high school teacher. Uh, it's summers off. It's March break. It's, it's a good job. I mean, when I was applying to be a teacher, there's only three schools in all of Ontario that take teachers, take tech teachers to become a, a technology teacher. And just to put that in perspective, Ontario is like two Texases big. So it's a big province and only three schools of those three schools. They only had in 20 people. And of those 20 people, it's every tech teacher. So in my class, there was only two of us who are going to be auto shop teachers the following year. So it, it's hard to get that job. People apply year after year after year to get into teacher's college and then take two to three years to get a job because it's it's a really, really good job to have. So we moved at first, you know, he was, but he was at that point used to it. He knew that it was crazy. The beauty of it was I was on a sabbatical from teaching. So if I wanted to come back, I could come back, but they were getting ready to retire. And they were like all Canadians when they retire, they were going to spend half their year in Florida. So <laughs> it actually worked out pretty good because they would come down, stop in Tennessee for a couple of weeks and then go on to Florida. Or we would go down to Florida with Zach when he was young and we'd go to Disney world. And so it actually worked out pretty good in the long run. That is very, I mean, I mean, it's cool, but yeah, I've made the joke about being like really, truly like upstate New York, but across the river, but really like all New Yorkers that they run to Florida. I mean, they really emb yeah. embodied it. I always made the joke. I never understood, you know, so in, when you live in Canada, you really don't have a choice, right? The, the climate is the climate. You know, you can go to British Columbia where maybe it doesn't snow, but it just rains every day. It's kind of like Seattle. But that's why all Canadians live like right up against that border. If you look at the population map, they're looking for heat, right? They're looking for warmth. I always joked. I'd be like, why does anyone live in the northern? You have count. You have you have Arizona. You have Nevada. You have all these great sunny southern places you could live where it doesn't snow. Why would anyone choose to live where it snows? Still to this day, I don't understand that because I hate I just hate winter. I hate everything about it. So it, it just baffled my mind why why some people would live somewhere when they could live somewhere that's the weather's nicer. That's just how my brain works. No, I think you're spot on. I'm, I'm right there with you. I moved 750 <laughs> miles South of where I grew up. You know, I get old pale of Kansas with miles Hasekus, you know, we could be, you know, <laughs> drinking Keystone lights on his driveway right now. <laughs> I see those pictures. I see, I see when miles posts pictures working in that triple a truck out in the snow. I'm like, no, sir, not for me. You can have that all day long. <laughs> no, he's like, when it's cold, it's cold. When it rains, it's wet. <laughs> yep. No. Yeah. There's better. There's places where it doesn't do either of those things. I don't even own a winter coat. I have jackets, but I don't even have a winter coat. I always joke that I said I liked snow on Christmas and that was it. And I said, you know, I always wanted to live somewhere where it snowed on Christmas Day and melted on Boxing Day, which is, is the day after Christmas for anyone who's either British or English or Canadian. They know what I mean. The first year we lived in Tennessee, it did exactly that. Snowed on Christmas Day, melted the next day. I was like, this is where we're meant to live. It's perfect. We're, we're great. When I do have to layer jackets, it's only for California. 
And it's exactly. only for Johnson yeah. Valley. <laughs> yeah. Why do you want a the stocking fun, cap, the, Johnson Valley? My, my funny KOH story is the year that I raced KOH in 2009, I invited a couple of my friends that I'm still friends with to stay from Canada to come down and work on our pit crew. They packed nothing but shorts and T-shirts because they were coming to the, quote, desert in February. So they were expecting, you know, like, you know, the, the movies. It's like the Sahara Right. They thought they were going to be hot and, and they show up and they were like buying hoodies up and they drove it back to town and bought some long pants. It was hilarious because they were not ready for high desert. Not at all. Well, perfect timing and where we're at in a, you know, this interview is King of the Hammers and you as a racer, there was a window there that you raced for a little bit. Yep. What yep. year, what it was that? Oh, nine, 2010. Yeah. It's ironically, it's the only year that they didn't make the poster. So it's 2009 and I wanted the poster from the year that they raced, but they didn't make a poster in 2009. So yeah, it was 2009 that we, uh, we built a car, brought it up Lake bed. We raced KOH RCQ and a race in Oklahoma that year as well. So those, those three races we raced. No, that's 2010. Okay. That would be 2010 then. Yeah. 2010. All okay. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What happened to that car? Uh, we gave it away. So the deal went like this. So I said to my wife, I'm racing King of the Hammers or I'm doing the wide open Baja thing. One of the two. I said, I want to do one of those two things. I knew what King of the Hammers was. I thought it was super cool. It, I knew Jeff and Dave. And and I at the time, I was involved with Crawl Magazine. And so I knew I'd be able to leverage my Crawl stuff to basically slide in there and get a spot. I wouldn't have to qualify. I knew I could get a spot. Uh, they'd give me a spot for like media type thing. It's the only time I've ever pulled the I'm on TV card in my entire life was to get a spot to race the King of the Hammers. Cause back then you, you might remember this back then you couldn't just, I don't think there was a last chance qualifier back then. It was, you were invited. If you finished top 10, we rock top 10, you rock XRA guys came basically Dave Cole made it the super bowl of, of off-road racing. It was, you had to get invited to come. And, uh, so we, we leveraged a, a spot at a Dave that way. I went to my buddy, Jimmy Penner, who was my co-driver. He owned a shop in, in Murfreesboro called essentially off road. And I said, I want to race this race. I can get a spot and I can get all the parts we need, but I don't have time to build a car. And so he said, well, I'll, my shop will build the car and I'll be your co-driver. And we raced and I said, all right, well, here's the deal. When we're done, I'll just give you the car. I don't care what happens to the car. I got enough cars as it is. And so, uh, when it was all said and done, I, I did that. I gave him the car and, and, and he kept it for a few years. And I think he gave it to an employee after that. It ended up in a couple, uh, of the, uh, dirt riot races and a couple other local races here. And I honestly have no idea where it is now. What is Jimmy Penner up to these days? I haven't heard that name in a while. And is yeah, the off-road still kicking around? Essentially off-road still going. He's not running it. He took a step back. He had a kid and went and did some other stuff. He basically stepped out of the off-road stuff for a while and uh, he's getting back into it now, but not as a business. He got deep into cell phone tower manufacturing for a while as a business. Uh, he started a new business now called, he's basically doing fleet truck repair, maintenance and selling trucks, uh, but he's back in his old building. But I think he just got burned out on, on trying to survive as a hardcore off-road shop. You know, it's just, it's tough. It's tough to do it. I, I absolutely get that. You know, th one, things are cyclical, but two, you know, you have to keep challenging yourself to learn new things, challenge yourself to accomplish new goals. And as you keep moving that ball, if you come up short, that's disheartening. You lose motivation, yep. you lose traction, the prize gets fuzzy and you just need some uh, perspective in life. And sometimes the best thing to do is walk away, wash your hands, 
I think what it did is it got him back into into four wheeling for fun. You know, I think because I go to Easter Jeep Safari every year, and I invited him out one year, and he came just to ride for a couple of days, and then the next year. But I warned him. I said, "You go once, and you go. You'll always go back." And so then the next year, of course, he was back. You know, he started to get back into just the recreation side of it, and he actually, I sold him. I had the sh- the show sell him one of my favorite projects, which is a Suzuki super light tube chassis Zook with an aluminum body with a VW diesel engine in it. And it's actually back in the shop here right now. It's going to be on four wheeler next year uh, for a little bit of work. But the deal was, I told him, I said, I'll, I'll have them sell you this project. They're going to sell it to you dirt cheap, but you got to promise me you can never sell it. It's always got to be yours. And he, he's kept that promise. He's like, I'll keep it forever. He's brought it out to Moab a couple times, and now he's getting ready to go back out to Moab again. I think it's got him back into the recreation side of wheeling, which which is good. I mean, some guys, you get burned out on trying to make a living at this, and you, everyone always says, you know, turn your hobby into your job, and you never work a day in your life. But the reality is you turn your hobby into your job, and then all of a sudden your hobby has become your job, and that's just the truth. And you hate it. Yeah, and some people adapt to that great, and some people, they just don't. And that I think that's what happened with Jimmy. But he's still a good friend, great friend, and, and we still talk all the time. So it's good to see him back recreation again. I'm glad to hear his name and hear he's still kicking around still, and exactly like you said, back at it. Yep. What was your first off-road vehicle? 85 Jeep CJ7. You still have that one? No, I <laughs> wish. Well, it was pretty bad. It was pretty rough. So I I'd worked at Street Tech Engine. I was at, helping out the guys at Street Tech Engines. And this guy in our town, small town, you know, everyone knows everybody. This guy showed up with this Jeep. And he showed up with a copy of Peterson's four-wheel and off-road. And he wanted a 360 AMC put in the Jeep. And so we helped him put the 360 in. And then he took off. And the next week it's showing up back on a tow truck and we're freaking out thinking, Oh, did the engine go South or what's going on? And he comes walking in big old smile on his face with a copy of Peterson's. And he's like, I need bigger axles. Here's an article on how to put these one ton axles underneath this Jeep. And I looked at him and said, what are you doing with this Jeep? Cause he wasn't mad that he'd completely destroyed the axles. He's like, Oh, we're trail riding and mud bogging up this thing. We'd been building pro street cars. And when you build a pro street car, it's great. Cause a lot of tube work and it's cool. But back then it wasn't like it is now. No one drove the car. You know, you'd put all these race car parts in this car and it sat in our town. It sat at Woolworths, sat downtown Woolworths for every Friday night. You stood around the car, polished the tunnel ram and talked about, you know, how fast it would go if you ever put it on a drag strip. But you don't want to do that because you might scratch the paint. You know, it was kind of disheartening. You put all that work into a car and it never raced. And this crazy guy at this Jeep was every time he came back, it was broken. He was happy. I went out with him once and immediately came home at the time. I had a 79 Chevy pickup truck that was slammed on the ground. It was pro street. And I sold that and went out and bought a Jeep the next day. And that, and I've had a Jeep ever since I've always owned a Jeep, no matter what, and never looked back, but he got me into it hard into and fast. And so this, I'm going to say this, this is for like Jonathan Terhune and company. They'll know I'm talking to them. That's a great inflection point, Ian. Inflection point in your life. I do love that phrase. But no, that's that was exactly the hook that uh, that I was waiting to see where it hooked in your life. When the bug kind of hit. I knew you're a car guy. You can be a car guy. You can be mechanic. Car guys are car guys are car guys. But are you an off-road guy? And when did that hook get set? And there it was. This guy with this, this Jeep that was coming in. And you're like, okay, I'm in. Yep. Oh, I, I was bought. No problem. And then, you know, immediately did all the things you shouldn't do to a Jeep, you know, sprung over lift 35s on an AMC 20. And that's what also helped me be a better transmission mechanic. 
because I pulled a 360. I got a 360 from my old high school shop teacher at the time. And he just said, yeah, I got a 360. And so I bought it from him. This is when I'm like 19, 20, right? So I'm working every day at the dealership and then working at a garage behind my parents' house at night and uh, stuff in this 360 in there. But it was a 360 Chrysler, not a 360 AMC. But my Jeep, my 85 CJ, it had a Torque Command 904 or Torque Command 999, which is actually what the name of it, which is the three-speed automatic. And the 904 would be what was behind the 360 AMC. And I tried to basically take two transmissions and make them work by putting all the different parts inside. And I had to rebuild that transmission. I think I think it was 13 times before it worked right. I would leave the house. The joke with everyone that knew me, I would leave and I'd come back with only reverse every time. And I'd back it into the shop and drop the transmission out and start working on it again. The transmission was good for one weekend and one weekend only. And that was it. And it would burn up. Terrible. Yeah, it was awful. But I learned so much about chasing valve body patterns and check balls and, and pressure and, and all the stuff that goes on inside a transmission just because of that car and because of that Jeep. Like to this day, I can rebuild a, a Torque Command 999 transmission without looking at a manual. No problem at all. Take it apart, put it back together, and it's good to go. I know all, I know all the clutch back specs. I know the end play. I know all the gotchas because I've been gotten by them all. You're, you're a dying breed, man. <laughs> dying breed. <laughs> How many projects have you had? Oh, uh, it's too many. Uh, right? If you count, I think one time we had, we did the TV. So if you counted all the TV projects, we did it once when we cracked like a hundred episodes on extreme four by four, I think we added it all up and we went through and it was golly. It's, it's over 50 vehicle builds in, in the past 20 years. Currently right now I have 13 cars for running. So right now I have at least nine projects on the go at this current time right now. This is what kills me. Even, you know, as a racer and as my own, you know, hobby wrench myself, just getting parts in and flowing from all the different parts of the world. Guys tell you, you know, we're not going to talk about like Doug's axles or something like that, where you order them. Poor Doug. (laughs) You know, he's got a faction out there, you know, trying to still recover his axles for him. But you kind of tend to regularly hear stories like that. Like you order a part and then it takes that, you know, like, Oh yeah, it's unstuck, ready to go. And then you don't, it doesn't show up for three months and you're having to chase it down. And that's just one guy working on one project. I mean, how do you have as much hair as you have when dealing with that in the automotive industry and dealing with that in the off-road industry, where it seems like almost this proliferation of parts kind of, are kind of laissez-faire about their stuff. Don't get me wrong. There's some badass companies out there that when they say they're selling it, you're getting it. Yeah, it's the funny thing about that is that was always the number one complaint about all the TV shows. They'd always say, you know, oh, you jump around from project to project to project. It's just annoying. And, you know, when we started the show, I immediately changed my screen name on Pirate to Ian from Extreme and just took a bashing because the first show was terrible. But that's a long story. Anyway, that was always their complaint, right? It was that you jump. But I would always explain to them that's it's a necessary evil because we have a production schedule to meet. But then at the same time, like you said, sometimes the parts, they just don't show up. So you have to roll a different vehicle in and work on it. That's what created that was just trying to get these parts in. When, when I was doing Extreme, we were doing 23 episodes a year. So you're basically trying to do two every two weeks. You're trying to make a show. And it, it's just it's tough. And, you know, you may think, oh, on Monday we're filming with the axles, but the axles don't show up for many different reasons. And you got to punt and move to something else. And that was, it, it is tough. 
but over the years, it's just, you know, I've been doing this for so long and built so many cars that I know when to order enough parts. I think for a lot of guys, they just, if it's their first project or even their second, you don't really get into the groove of, all right, if I, I'm going to need this part and if I need the shocks, I better get springs and I better get this and I better get my heim joints at the same time. And I think until you've built a bunch of cars, you don't realize how many parts you need to move a project forward at different stages. And I think I'm fortunate that I've done enough now that I know when to get different parts coming and how to work around that, which is good. Well, if this TV thing doesn't work out for you, I think that's the job for you. Some consultancy work on that. Like you could, you could farm out your consultancy on uh, doing project management from a, from a distance. I mean, if yeah. anything, we've learned anything out of uh, the COVID-19 is how to do everything from a distance. How to do everything from a distance. Yeah. This morning I taught uh, TIG welding 101 to 142,000 people on the ESOB Facebook page. So if I can teach people how to TIG weld from a distance, I think, I think we're on our way to doing anything by distance. So it was all good. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Digital lug. We touched based on it a little bit ago. Digital lug is a company. It's a media company. It's your media company. Yep. And I don't want to go too deep into it because that's really where you're at today, but you moved to uh, Nashville mm -hmm. starting the ball in motion for digital lug becoming something in your life. You moved down yep. there for RTM. Yep. And that's, Joe St. Lawrence. Joe St. Lawrence. Yep. Joe St. Lawrence. Greatest individual on the planet as far as I'm concerned. I have nothing but good things. So one of the reasons I left RTM was I, I would never put this on him because he would he would feel bad if I said this. But Joe St. Lawrence retired. He he deserved to retire. He was older. He was the smartest person I've ever met in my entire life. His wife, Patty, was probably one of the most savvy businesswomen I've ever met in my entire life as well. They ran that company from nothing to literally they started that company by selling ignition points, spark plugs and spark plug wires on home shopping networks for Harley Davidson motorcycles to at its peak in 2006, seven, eight, you know, it was a $20 million company. It was the most watched automotive television because this was pre-Motor Trend. Motor Trend didn't exist. There was the most watched automotive television on the planet. And it was all run by those two people out of uh, uh, Nashville, Tennessee, Franklin, Tennessee, actually. But the cool thing about Joe was he was the kind of guy that you could walk into his office and sit down and you could say, Joe, why did you do this for this business? And, and what, what made you do that? And he would pull back the green curtain, no secrets. He would tell you everything about his business, no questions asked. When he retired, he was here. I'll take an, I'll, I'll pull a Wyatt here and I'm going to go pull an aside for a second. So yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. <laughs> the, the coolest Joe St. Lawrence story was when we started extreme four by four, it was myself, Jesse Combs, uh, Tom Spichowski was our producer and we had a freelance cameraman by the name of Davey Glover. I sat down with Tom. I was hired first. Jesse was hired about a week later and I sat down with Tom and Tom had said to me, he goes, this is my vision for this show. I want to make it very different than anything else that RTM did, does. And I said, okay, so the first episode of the show, first two episodes, they're not that good. I'll be the first one to admit it because they were planned by the previous people at RTM. It was planned basically by the sales guys. It was basically like trucks TV with Stacy David, just with two different people hosting the show. When we hit episode three and four was where, you know, Tom and I sat down and said, this is what the show is going to look like. And we brought in some junkyard axles and, you know, we dragging stuff across the floor and. That show hit edit and we were in production of show five 
and Joe St. Lawrence showed up at the studio at the time. The studio was in a different location and Joe St. Lawrence showed up and shut down production. And he said, stop what you're doing. You're doing this all wrong. And he made us watch an episode of like horsepower TV where they installed, spent the entire episode putting in a carpet kit and a shifter. That was 30 minutes of television. And he goes, that's, that's what these shows are supposed to be. And we had taken a frame, put suspension underneath it, cut apart some junkyard axles, put the junkyard axles underneath it, welded all the brackets on, mounted a body, and dropped the drivetrain and dropped the engine transmission transfer case in in one episode. Joe was like, that is too much. You're going too fast. And he basically told us we're doing it all wrong and we need to change it. Tom, my producer at the time, looked at me and he said, what do you want to do? And I, I'm like, I didn't know. I would just, I was teaching three weeks before that. I didn't know what I didn't. My answer was, I, I thought we were making a cool show. And Tom said, so do I. Here's what we're going to do. He goes, we might get fired, but I'm going to keep shooting the show the way we want to shoot it. I'm just not going to hand the tapes in until it's too late to change it. So it has to go to the network and we're just going to let it slide and we might lose our jobs, but I think we're making the right decision. And to Joe's credit, the show aired, first two episodes aired. We were destroyed on Pirate, rightfully so. And I jumped in there and tried to mediate it a little bit, you know, telling people, hey, it's going to get better. Sorry, trust me. Show three and four hit, and that's when they were our shows, we call them. And the tide completely changed. Everyone loved the show. To his credit, we became the highest rated show in the Power Block. Huge fan mail response, lots of emails, lots of forum action. Because this is pre-Facebook, so that's all you had to go by. And uh, Joe St. Lawrence came to the studio and he walked in and he said, I was wrong. You were right. I obviously have no idea what your audience wants to see. I'm out. Just do it. Just get it done every two weeks. Hand us hand me in a show. It's your show. Do what you want to do. And he let us go after that. Just really let us be hands off, which was great. And that that's how we grew Extreme 4x4 into the show that it was. He, he wasn't that overbearing boss who was like, I told you to do it my way. He was just, nope, you guys were right and I was wrong. So make your show and we'll see what happens. And it was great. That is a great story. I really, I mean, I'm completely, I guess, enamored with people that are great media and mindful insights and how they go about operating their business. And I heard you say this at one point about Joe was his kind of philosophy was rising tides lift all ships. 100%. Yep. Joe was always about that. And when I started Digital Lug, the first thing I did was I called up Joe and Patty and I told them that I was doing, I said, I'm starting this, this media company, this production company. We're doing things differently. We're pushing heavy into social media. We're pushing heavy into the digital streaming. We're not really going to even deal with any traditional cable networks for any of our shows. He said, what are you doing tomorrow? Patty and I will have lunch with you. And they, we sat down and Joe basically said, tell me how you're running your business. And I told him and he said, I think you're a hundred percent right. You're doing, you're going the right way. And then Patty sat down and she said to me, all right, how are you running the business side of your business? Cause that was her forte. She steered me right into how I should run my business. I made a lot of changes on my basically back end of my business. Thanks to her. And, uh, it, it's for the best. And, you know, they basically, to this day, I can still text Joe and ask him for advice or a question. And he's always be the first one to say, Hey, this is how, this is what I would do. And I think you're, this is what you're doing here. Do you want me to call somebody? I can call somebody for you. That's just how Joe is. Well, I can think of like how many weekends were spent, you know, by all of us, everyone listening to this show, the pirate crew, everybody watching power block, you'd lock it in and you'd catch horsepower TV. You'd catch your show. You'd catch Courtney. 
RTM kind of had it going all the way back from when it was on TNN, then it went to Spike, yep. and then... Yep. And the cool thing is, I mean, when I went to Joe back in, in 2000 and, and whatever it was, six, seven, I can't remember, it was like King of the Hammers was just an, a new idea, right? I knew about it, and I went to Joe, and I just said, listen, this makes absolutely no business sense. There's no sponsors. There's nobody on this lake bed, but we really need to cover this. He called Dave and Jeff, talked to them both, and hung up the phone, and he just said, you know, it's the right thing to do to get a crew out there to cover the event. And and that's what we did. We sent a couple guys out to sort of try and cover it, and they they covered it. The next year was the year that Lauren Healy won it. We had him on set for, for to basically, and then replayed some of the video that, that David captured with his crew. And uh, Joe just believed that he's like, he, he was always the one who said, you know, if it's, if it's real, it's going to help the show. And so let's just help this guy out and, and get, get the name out there and, and help him push this, this idea. And so he bought into King of the Hammers from the very beginning. And I think it was really smart of him to do it. You know, it was, it was obviously it's, it was the right decision at the time and it is today too. Oh, I, fully. Stay tuned. Your talent tank is in full get. Since 2007, Custom Splice has been the go-to supplier for tactical on- and off-road vehicle recovery equipment. Custom Splice owner Todd Stoffer saw a market where demands for absolutely the safest solutions to vehicle recovery were not being met. Since then, Custom Splice has taken on numerous safety and recovery projects, solving deficiencies in recovery gear for individuals and companies worldwide. What started with synthetic ropes has led to Custom Splice's expansive inventory of not just ropes in countless colors and diameters, but an expansive product line of hooks, fair leads, specialty thimbles, chafe guards, to name a few, plus the fabrication of Custom Splice's newest addition, recovery rings. Not to be forgotten, don't miss grabbing some Custom Splice soft shackles with your next order, which are also available in many sizes and colors. Even though Custom Splice is a small business in America's heartland of Kansas, you can find Custom Splice employees shipping their products globally on a daily basis. Let's support this small business that supports our community and the talent tank. Give Todd and his crew at Custom Splice a call at 785-856-1844 or go to the web at customsplice.com before you get stuck without a Custom Splice solution. Now, back to the show. <laughs> back when you raced in like 2010 and kind of through that little era, could you imagine if we, that we would be sitting having this conversation a decade later and saying that you're one of the, the core crew of announcers? No, I mean, back then there was no announcers, right? It was like, it was, I remember Lance running a, thousand foot land cable out to the cell phone bush with a hotspot modem. And he was like, they had this, like him, him and camo had this like sketchy, like borderline kidnapper rape van that they called the pirate mobile van. It was, so, and they were like typing in text updates of the race. And it was, it was so, and it was, there was nobody there. And everything was against that, that like putting on, if you, if mm -hmm. you were to go today and try to pitch that idea to somebody, Oh, I'm going to, put a race on in the middle of desert, middle of nowhere. And this is what I want to do. And, and, you know, Dave Cole, you know, you've had so many people on the show say the same thing and I'll say it. He's, he's a scary visionary all in one and one deal. Cause he does come up with crazy ideas to his, probably to his detriment. They keep working out cause he just keeps coming up with crazier ideas. Yeah. To this day. I mean, when you think about just when you go to the lake bed now and 
just look at it and then compare it to pictures from 2008, 2009, it's the growth is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Oh yeah. The driver's meeting back then was standing on somebody's flatbed trailer and yelling at us. Yeah. Well, there was, there was no vent. There, there was a small tent with like four vendors in it. Tom Kingston was there. PSC was there. I think J.E. Real was there. I mean, a few of the core guys were there, but there was no vendor row. There were no food trucks. Oh, God, no. That was just what it was. You were in the middle of the desert doing, uh, hanging out with your friends, just trying out this racing thing. And it was, and the race has changed so much. You know, it was back then it was, it wasn't a race. It was basically a trail ride to mile 90. And then if your car was still together at mile 90, then you tried to race to the finish because nobody's car would be able to stay together for 90 miles of racing back then. The technology was not there like it is today. Yeah. We used to run ready welders on our cars. Remember that? Like, yes, that was a race item on your vehicle was a ready welder. Yep. Ready welder on the car. It wasn't, is it going to break? It was, when's it going to break and how like that? That's just what, I mean, the, even just the attrition rate, like, I mean, and, and also just the finish, you know, back then you finished in the dark. Now you finish, you know, sun's still up top 10 or across the line before it starts getting cold. You know, it's just, it's a completely different race. And the race is twice as long. It was maybe 115 miles back then. Now it's 230 miles long. It's, it's, it's amazing how, how far this race has gone in, in just 10 years. So you, what you're saying is it's gotten easier. It's well, no, <laughs> I think, I think everyone learns that if you ever tell Dave, it's easy then he just throws more rock trails at you and makes your life more difficult out there for sure. That's Dave Cole. Like if you, t- if you comment on the race, to Dave Cole in any way that it's easy, it's definitely harder the next year. No questions asked. I think 2021 race is going to be insane hard. I feel like 2020 UTVs came back too quick trophy truck attrition was not really what it was the year before and then 4400 god there was 40 some racers there was i mean that was almost 50 percent of the field finished this year yeah the race this year was probably the biggest nail biter race i think i've seen in like at least five years and so i but i, I think you're right i think next year he's going to push it even harder and make it even tougher which i mean he you should if you're going to take the claim of toughest single day race in north america or the world you should be the toughest single day race in the world, which it is. Well, I have a line item on here where we're going to talk more about KOH 2020, but I'm going to bounce back to extreme four by four. You did that show for 14 years. I'd be right around 14 years. Yeah. Yep. Tell me what your favorite highs and tell me what your lows were, man. That's a tough one. Probably. Ah, let's see. So God, probably my lows. If I was going to say my low, it'd be when Joe retired, that's going to be the lowest lowest point of that, because I think when Joe retired, when you're in a business, when there's a visionary and the visionary kind of peels back, you see the business change in a way that you're not, not happy with. And I think that that was kind of, that was definitely a low for, for me, for sure. Highs would be, man, there's so many of them. I mean, probably the first, first four years we did the show, even, especially with Jesse on there, those are probably, when I look back on it now, probably the most fun we ever had making that show was when it was the core group that started the show. So it was myself, Jesse Combs, Tom Spachowski, and our camera guy, Mo and Matt at the time were the two camera guys. Those were the highs. I mean, I couldn't pick one high out of that. There was just so many fun things that we did from building a truck on the floor of the Denver Convention Center for uh, four-wheel parts truck and Jeep fest 
to going to Pomona for off-road expo where we just grabbed two random people out of the crowd, walked them around, looked at a bunch of parts and then had all the vendors give them those parts to build their trucks and then go back a year later and see the trucks. So there'd be, just be so there's too many to pick too many to pick for sure. That would be my, my top ones. How cool and in retrospect inspiring was it of yourself and to watch yourself and think about your, yourself and your personal growth over that time period and to have done that side by side with Jesse Combs. So, I mean, the thing, Jesse was great co-host. It was super good to work with her. Looking back on it now, she took the job because I think she knew it was a stepping stone for what she wanted to do. She told me on day one, you know, when she first started working there, she did not want to be a mechanic, did not want to be a TV host. She wanted to be a race car driver. No questions asked. She said, I'm doing this to be a race car driver. And back then, you know, in 2004, 2005, the only real racing off-road was Baja, maybe some We Rock stuff. There was no Rock. XRA hadn't come along. Ultra 4 hadn't come along. So I think that that was her deal was she she had an, an, an end and out plan. And I think she did it well. I think she came on the show, represented herself well. She was definitely uh, a pioneer in, in the space. I think at the time, you know, there were no, quote, car girls that were famous because YouTube hadn't even been invented yet. So there wasn't a lot of people out there. She inspired generations of girls to get out and work in the shop, which I think is amazing. So I think it was great. You know, they say, you know, I think it was a line from dust to glory. He said, if you knew you were making history, you probably would have paid more attention to it when you were doing it. And I think that when looking back on it now, I think Jesse would probably feel the same way. I mean, we didn't know at the time that we were the only off-road how-to television show with the only female talent doing what we were doing, helping a uh, basically budding industry of off-road just blow up like it did. We were definitely riding that wave and didn't even know it at the time. We were just having fun doing it, which was great. Yeah. Retrospect is always, you know, hindsight's 2020, right? hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, working with Jesse, I mean, it all, I'm not going to lie. It all wasn't sun, sunshine and lollipops and she would be the first one to admit it. Oh, I mean, she's hard headed. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the thing, the thing that people don't understand, and this was another thing that was, you know, I keep going back to Joe Saint, but this is just how Joe Saint was. Joe Saint was, and, and this kind of could when, when I started doing four wheeler, this was one thing that blew the motor trend network away was Joe Saint always said, if you're going to go on one of my television shows and say, I rebuilt this transmission. You have to be the person that rebuilt the transmission. You, there's no stunt mechanics, no behind the scenes work. That's not how we do it because the viewer will know. No questions asked. So we were working. I mean, that first season of Extreme, we had to do 22 episodes. First episode had to be delivered to the network on January 1. We were both hired the week after SEMA. I was hired the week of SEMA. She was hired the week after SEMA. So for those of you who don't know calendars and SEMA, that's November. It may seem weird, but SEMA is the same time every year, even though we never got our cars finished in time for it. But it's uh, it's the last week in October. So you're talking two months to get the first show delivered to the network. And then you, we had to deliver 13 shows in a row. So we would basically work all day making television. And then I would work all night. Jesse would work for part of the night. We would build the vehicle for the next day, shoot the next day, work, shoot, work, shoot every single day for basically four months straight. Yeah. There was times that we just got on each other's hair, you know, and plus I just moved here from another country. She had just moved here from rapid city. So it was just, there were times where we were huge fights, but at the end, great shows. So it ended up really well. 
in hindsight, you wouldn't change a thing. Hindsight, it didn't like you. I don't remember what we fought about, but I certainly remember all the great times we had when we were on the road together doing silly stuff together. Yeah, here's a great Jesse story because when I used to travel for the first probably six months of the show, we traveled a lot because we were trying to get the word out from the show. So we went to a lot of things like the four wheel jamborees and all these different events, and we we're also covering them to get content for the show. Uh, and at the time, my son was like three years old and he was super young. So he, him and my wife, wife traveled with me because she didn't know anybody in Tennessee and he didn't go to school. So they had the freedom to go and come with me. Jesse used to always decorate whatever hotel we stayed at. She would decorate the door of our hotel room for my son. When he woke up in the morning, there'd be some silly thing that she drew a sign that she drew for him or a picture or his name or something. And she, so when he woke up every hotel we stayed in, he knew that there would always be something on the door for him to find that the next morning. And that was just the type of person she was. And that's, that's rare for someone. She didn't have kids like someone who has kids. It's easy for to do that kind of stuff. Right. But she just, she's just a good person. She just saw him as the only kid on the shoot. And so she was going to make sure that he was having fun as well and just not being the kid that's drug around to different events. So it was great. Yeah. You're not the first person to tell me similar stories like that. And I, you know, not having not known her personally or having a relationship with her to, to hear those, it's really heartwarming to hear the stories about her and the, the, the world's really missing, really missing out by uh, not having her in it anymore. I think my wife said it best. She, you know, when we got the news and, and it sunk in and I think we were like about a week later, my wife had said, she said, you know, it shocks me that somebody with such a huge life force would be the only way to describe Jesse. She had just a life force about her is gone. And it's just, she said, you know, you can almost just feel it that there's, that there's less of that in the world because she just sort of had this sort of like ability just to, if she walked in the room, she picked up the whole room and, and that was just the way it was. And she was such, such an individual and such a powerful individual. And to have her gone is just, it's, it's shocking to this day. I know she was doing what she loved. She was chasing a dream and she was always, that's just how she was. It was no holds barred. I'm chasing my dream. That's what I'm going to do. And sometimes it just doesn't work out and it's a shame. But I think at the end of the day, the only way to look at it is just sort of say, you know, she was doing what she loved and, and went out probably as happy as she's ever been. I would be remiss if I did this. I feel like it did work out for her. Yeah. Right. I was super glad when I heard they were giving her the, the, the land speed record. I think that was the right thing to do. I'm sure she earned it. I think she did. And I think it's the right way to posthumously award her that fastest woman on four wheels, which, you know, that's, that's, that's her. And what, even in my opinion, you know, it's like, it's what she said. It's like, even if she wasn't the fastest woman on four wheels, if I was to think of a caricature of the fastest woman on four wheels, it's her, it would be Jesse Combs. Yeah. hundred. <laughs> she doesn't have to be a land speed racer to win that in my mind. She's just the fastest woman on four wheels. hundred percent. I mean, when you think about it, the few times that she crossed the finish line and hammers, like when she won in the stock class, she crossed and have the biggest smile on her face. She didn't come in tired, wore out. She came in happy and wanting to go more. And so, yeah, in my mind and spirit, she was the fastest woman on four wheels. No questions asked. So shifting gears here a little bit, at what point did you know that you were ready for your next challenge? You did 14 years with extreme highs, lows. At what point did you step back and say almost the Jimmy Pinner of it here is I need a change? So for me, this will get kind of into the business side of this. For me, the biggest benefit of Extreme 4x4 when we were making it is 
we were able to help so many companies go from zero to hero, no questions asked. That's just how it was. Because we would just put a product on the show and then Monday morning, these company owners were calling me up and they were just like, oh my God, our website crashed. We had so much traffic and thank you so much. If there's anything you can, we can do for you. Be great. I mean, we, we had spider tracks axles on the show when, when Tom and Eddie were doing it and they were nobody, you know, they had just graduated college in New Jersey and, and opened this little, this little this wheel adapter and axle company. And, and we had them on the show and, and, and they blew up, you know, and they, we had so many companies that would come back to us and say, this is so great. I think what changed it for me was I was sitting around and I was sitting there watching and I was looking at social media was growing and, and streaming video was growing. And I was just looking at my personal numbers and I was watching what companies were doing. And I was seeing how companies were starting to push heavy into social on video content and content creation. And I was sort of looking at outside of our industry. I was kind of joke that automotive industry is about five years behind the mainstream industry. So if you look at like the Coca-Colas and, and the Tides and, and the Red Bulls of the world, and you look at the moves that they make, about five years later, somebody in our industry makes the same move and people think they're visionaries because they're like, oh my God, I can't believe that, you know, Fox is doing their, doing their own stuff. Well, Red Bull was doing their own stuff 10 years ago. You know, they, they bought a Formula One team for goodness sake. That's, you don't buy a Formula One team uh, because it's a good investment. You buy it because it makes sense for your marketing department. So I was watching that happening and I just kept saying to my wife, I was like, you know, someone's got to start a content agency that only specializes in these platforms. I think there's a, I think there's legs here. And I kept talking about it and said, someone's going to do it. Someone's going to do it. Someone's going to do it. And finally she just said, if you don't stop talking about this, I don't want to hear about it anymore because I'm tired of this being our conversation every night at dinner. She said, if you know, Joe's retired, you're, you're ready for a change. Our son's going to college. If you're going to make a change, this is the time to do it. So do it. And I just said, that's it. Let's, let's pull the pin and do it. And that's exactly what we did. And that, that was the sort of the driving factor was just watching the, the changes in our marketplace and, and thinking that it might work out. So digital lug is formed. Yeah, exactly. It, it formed a little messy. I started with a partner and I knew better. I, I should have known better when I, I never thought I'd be a business guy. My first business venture was crawl magazine. And that was just because the magazine was going away. And it, it owed me money, to be honest with you. They, they went bankrupt and I'd been freelance writing for them for over a year and they never got a paycheck. And so they owed me a bunch of freelance paychecks. And John Herrick, who at the time was doing some work for them, he called me up and he said, do you want to keep this magazine going because we can get out of bankruptcy? And I said, well, give me a portion of the magazine in exchange for the money that the magazine owes me and we'll do it. And so I ended up part owner of the magazine and did that for like three years. And he bought me out because I knew then that I couldn't own part of something. I needed to own all of it if I was going to be a business guy. Just my personality type. I kind of knew it because him and I would butt heads occasionally about business decisions. And But he was a majority owner and that was his call. I was a minority owner and I knew that. So when I started Digital Lug, I started with a partner and I shouldn't have done that. I should have started clean and just bit the bullet and did it myself. But I started with a partner and that lasted literally 31 days. And then I bought my partner out and then started doing this this myself and we launched Kevin Tate's show, Hands on Cars, because the hot rod space is a little bit bigger than the off-road space. And I knew we could try this type of media rollout there easier. And uh, it was a success. And so then we, I had to wait out a non-compete, which is a long TV contract kind of thing. I had to wait a year before I could be on TV again. 
to kill time, I did Kevin's show in the meantime. And then we uh, started Big Tire Garage, and we've been going ever since. And, and it, it's so far, it's, it's taken a while for our industry to sort of understand what we do. But, you know, this year at SEMA, we actually had people chasing our ad team down and our, our guys to, you know, to talk to them about what we do. And which is, so I think the tide's turning and, and I think future's bright for sure. And you guys have a third show too. You guys have a uh, Hawk machines. Yeah. We, uh, Kenny Hawk. I kind of like work, like you said before, you know, rising tides lift all ships, you know, Kenny Hawk called me up. He had, he'd lost his deal on history channel because the network had canceled his show and, he just sort of was bouncing ideas off me. And I said, well, hey, wait a minute. You know, we're doing this show with Kevin. Do you want us to do a show with you, this Hawk Machines? Well, I'll go in and show you our business model and how we do it and and all that kind of stuff. And he was all in and he's like, yeah, he, he just wanted to continue to be on TV. You know, he had that TV bug still in him. And so I just said, well, we can help you out. And he has a crew out there that he works with that does the shooting and the editing and we handle distribution and some of the post-production and, and some of that and make sure he gets streamed out on Amazon prime. And, but yeah, it's gone well, it's gone really, really well. So being in the content creation game, like you are, how much time do you spend a week, a day working on what your next story is, what your next storyline is, what your next, where you're going you have to write, right? Yeah. I'm like every small business owner. I quit a nine to five to work a 24 seven. That's just the, re- I mean, you know what it's like. You've started this podcast. I'm sure every minute of your day, you're thinking of other things and, and what you're going to do next or who you're going to talk to next. And, and I'm the same way. Not only am I thinking of what my next move is for digital, for me, big tire garage, content creation, video, what's the next build going to be? Who are the sponsors we're going to pitch? We've got a lot of people talking to us about doing some lifestyle stuff for them now. Just basically, we did some stuff with Cummins two years ago. We did the Cummins cruise for them, you know, helping them plan that event, shoot that event, stream that event. And we're getting more and more calls from companies like that. Uh, So I have that happening 24 hours a day. I've got what's the next right business move for digital lug. Because if there's one truth about social media and streaming is it it's an ever-changing platform at this point. You are always having to stay one foot ahead of the game. So it, it just never stops. I would say every minute of every day, I'm thinking of something to do. Even even right now, we're in lockdown, and yet we're putting together live stream packages for our clients because that's what they want, and it's the right thing to do, and it's the right way to keep people entertained right now. So we had to like try to find equipment in the middle of all this when people aren't shipping and aren't selling, and you know we're buying stuff on eBay and on Craigslist and getting it shipped to the shop, and I'm patching cables together and I'm trying to do all myself, you know, so it's, it's a constantly moving target that you're trying to hit at all times. And you're trying to hit a moving target. That's sometime two weeks, three weeks, four weeks into the future. And in the world of instant gratification, where it's, they want to, you know, you, you post a post on Facebook and you get instant gratification, you get, you get likes or comments or whatever. We're going to do this. And actually yours is actually going to be fairly, fairly instant gratification, you know, uh, a week. But some of them, I've shot, you know, it's three, four weeks and I've got, you know, the race car driver sitting in your seat calling me or text me. Hey, when's mine come out? Hey, when do I get to listen to it? Hey, wh-. yeah, it's just drives me bad. It's so funny. I mean, like, cause I'll, I post some pictures of this. I'm building a 53 Willie's wagon right now for the next build series for Amazon. I had to put a YouTube video out there day, uh, basically explaining to people because I had started a Jeep Comanche build. And then I started, I built this giant shop that I'm in right now and started this company and sent my kid to college. 
and started the four, the four wheeler for Motor Trend. So I had to kind of just stop building the Comanche and just sort of pause that for a little bit. And a buddy of mine called me up and he goes, man, I'm going to start a drinking game that every time someone comments on your posts on social media and they ask where the Comanche is, I'm taking a shot because it's every time, every time. And that's, I understand it. I get it. And especially now people are stuck at home and they want stuff, but it does, it takes time and, and it's hard. And you know, as well as I do, you get this just because we're sitting here talking right now, it has to be edited. It's got to be gone through and checked. And it's no different in my world. If I point a camera at something, that's 10% of the work. You know, you got to edit it, mix it, prep it, get closed captionings done. There's so much work, but you're right. Everyone wants it right now. And then you got to produce it, get it out there, you know, give birth to the baby and then promote the baby. Exactly. Yeah. And at the same time, you're doing the next one. So it's tough, but it is, uh, you know, I always say to everyone, I said, I, you know, I could go back to being a mechanic tomorrow. I don't have to keep doing this. I can, this garage I'm in right now, it doesn't have to be two TV studios. I could be, be, be putting, wheels and lifts and on JLs all day long and probably make just as much, if not more money in the long run. But that's, uh, that's not what I want to do right now. This is what I want to do. So it's, it's my choice and it's my bed. I made it. I got to lie in it and it's, it's a good bed. I'm happy with it. It's good. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's awesome <laughs> to be honest with you. What it looks like from the outside is you've been able to make a fairly smooth transition from the syndicated network to this, now this streaming platform. And you got some great partners in that, right? You got Motor Trend plus all of your other, like, let's call it a, like e your ESOBs that support you. Yeah. I think the benefit of what I had, it's like I said before, we were in this mix at the very beginning when no one else was out there. So I'm very fortunate in the fact that I've never had to let a client down. I've never had to say I'm going to do something and, and then not be able to deliver and that's partly because of the freedom I had when we did Extreme 4x4. And that's partly because of the freedom I have right now of, of, of owning my own destiny and, and the help of social media. You know, the nice thing about it is, you know, if I say to someone, hey, I'll, don't worry, I'll get your stuff in front of 100,000 people. I know how to get it in front of 100,000 people in a matter of days now. I don't have to go and like get it on a network or get it in a magazine. I can leverage what I know about social media and get it out to just as many people, sometimes in a matter of days instead of a matter of months. Oh, absolutely. Social media is, it's at everybody's fingertips online. And then on their, once their mobile device, oh man, I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. So Motor Trend and you guys got together with, on Big Tire Garage. And if I butcher this all up, cause I'm, I'm not fully exactly sure. That's why I'm asking the questions is you pitched them or they pitched you on four wheeler. So I had no intention of doing any type of traditional television. I'd already made the decision that I was going to focus on social media and streaming and Amazon and all that kind of stuff. And then out of the blue, this guy by the name of David Hall, who ironically used to work with Joe St. Lawrence and he's very similar and he's a great guy as well as Joe. So he called me up and he's working with a production company out of Florida uh, called Brenton Productions and Motor Trend. And he calls me up and he goes, would you be interested in doing traditional television again? And I said, absolutely not because I know what you're going to do. You're going to put a big old contract in front of me that I got to sign where I can't post on Facebook. I can't post on Instagram. I can't put, I can't have anything on Amazon. I can't, I can't promote myself. Like I know how these contracts work. I've seen them. I've had them in front of me. I'm not signing them. I don't want them. I'm out. And he said, no problem. Thanks for the call and hung up a week later. He called me back and he said, so I talked to the network what if we didn't give you one of those big, crazy contracts and just had you help us make four wheeler TV and maybe that's what we'll do. And I said, 
oh, now I'm really interested. So if you, as long as you don't limit what I'm doing outside of the show, I'll, I'll, I'll be more than happy to. And then he pitched me this idea and he said, yeah, we don't work like Joe did at RTM. We don't make you build the vehicles. Uh, you're just going to fly in, host the show. We're going to have a couple other people build the vehicles. And you're just going to come down here and in Florida and just work a couple days, a couple days a month and then get back out. And I said, I'm out. And he was like, what? And I said, I'm out. I said, you're, you're talking to the wrong guy. I said, that's, I said, building the vehicles was the best part about uh, making TV in my mind. You have a shop with unlimited resources, no budget, build what you want, when you want, how you want. I love the building of the vehicles. And so he said, well, why do I'm going to come see you in, in Mount Pleasant. So he came down. Literally, the shop that I'm in right now was bare studs because we had just broke ground. We just started building it. The rough structure was up and the insulation wasn't even in. Nothing was done. And he said, so how are you going to build? How are you going to finish this thing out? And I explained to him, so I'm going to have two studios. One studio is Big Tech Garage and another studio just for commercial stuff or special projects. And he said, well, what if one of these studios was four-wheeler and we shot four-wheeler here and you built all the cars and we just brought in a crew once a month to film and you can build all the cars and you can, we don't care what you do with the cars. It can be your buddy's cars or you can own the cars or whatever you want. And I said, okay, now I'm, I'm, I'm definitely in on this deal because he was a super cool guy and I met the motor trend guys and they were super cool. And the funny behind the scenes story here, you like the behind the scenes stuff, Wyatt. So I'll give you the behind the scenes story is they reached out to four wheeler magazine and they had said, uh, Motor Trend, the network, because it's two different companies now, right? You've got Motor Trend, which is Motor Trend on Demand and, and the TV channel that you watch that's owned by Discovery Channel. And then you've got the magazines. The magazines are still their own company. They're not owned by uh, the network. And so they said, hey, we're going to make a TV show called Four Wheeler. It's named after your magazine because we own the rights to do that. And they talked to the editor and the editor said, that's fine. But whatever you do, do not build a tube buggy as your first project. And then they called me and they said, all right, what's the first project that we need to build? And I said, if you're going to start a TV show called Four Wheeler and you want it to be successful, the first project's got to be a throwdown tube buggy, no questions asked. <laughs> and, they said, and they said, well, you got to build it, so what do you want to build? And so I called up Drew. I literally was in the meeting with the network and I had my cell phone in my hand. I texted two people. I text, texted Adam Woodley and I texted Drew Burrows and I asked them both the same question. I said, hey, if I needed a chassis in two weeks for a Jeep, would it be possible? And Woodley, I'd used one of his uh, Jeep chassis previously for a giveaway vehicle for WD-40 on Extreme, and he had just said, there's no way. I'm too busy. I can't do it. And I, I've said, I get it completely. And Drew said, I can cut you a chassis tomorrow and have it there the next day. And his was the LJ pre-notch Woodley's he would have to build it and weld it on his jig and deliver it to me. So I understood that where Drew's was different. Drew's was the tubes show up on a pallet and you build your own Jeep LJ. I said, Drew, send me a chassis. It's going on motor trend. And he goes, I'll get it cut tomorrow and I'll ship it out the next day. And that was the first project. And it was, it was perfect. It was the perfect way to kick off the show. No questions asked. Stay tuned. Your talent tank isn't full yet. Do you know what the entire 2020 Ultra 4 Racing 4400 class King of the Hammers podium had in common? Brannick Motorsports Custom Machine. 
This small family-owned machine shop in Fort Wayne, Indiana, has been advancing off-road technology since 2003 by proud veteran owner Stan Haynes and his son Brandon, and a talent-heavy staff committed to pushing the motorsports performance envelope. If those names sound familiar, they should. Stan and Brandon have been off-road racers since before King of the Hammers was a thing, and both are pillars of Team Indiana. I'm always talking here on the Talent Tank about supporting those that support you. I'm struggling to think of a sanctioning body that Brandon hasn't supported in rock sports. Ultra 4, We Rock, Pro Rock, just off the top of my head. And I support these guys myself. My current daily driven pre-runner Chevy has numerous one-off custom pieces on it, from rear axle flanges to custom 5 8 inch lug nuts. I sent the crew at Brandon my ideas, and they made them a reality. Between the Brannick lines of Forge 4340 axle shafts all the way to their custom billet 300M shafts, Brannick has you covered with pretty much any custom axle shaft, any spline with no size or length restrictions. Need a rare oddball shaft for your Unimog? They have those as well. Sway bars, a large inventory of rod ends, big and small, their amazing specialized lightweight racing brakes and unit bearings and numerous bolt patterns onto their line of custom carrier bearings and U-joints in 1480 and 1550 flavors. And I about missed mentioning their amazing milled out aluminum suspension components, 7075 billet aluminum links and trailing arms. If you haven't seen these, you're missing out on some very aesthetically pleasing pieces of hardware. Brennick prides themselves on quality, service, and value, proudly making parts that wear the Made in the USA moniker. No matter if it's for your daily driven Jeep, Toyota, Chevy Pre-Runner, or something more serious like your Rock Bouncer, Ultra 4, or Trophy Truck, you're covered with a call to Indiana. Did I mention I've met a land speed racing team that runs Brannick axles at over 300 miles an hour? Yeah. To ensure you eliminate your downtime while recreational wheeling this weekend, reduce your time in the shop turning wrenches on repairs, or looking to put your race car on the podium, call Stan and Brandon at Brannick, 260-467-1808, or on the web at BrannickMotorsports.com. Brannick is a full-service machine shop that can handle everything from one-off to production runs. If they don't have it, they can make it. Now, back to the show. And so now where are you guys at? You guys are about to start shooting. We'll start season two. It was supposed to start end of April. We'll start it, I think, second week in May. So what's happening right now is we have, I've written all the project. I have to write like what I want to build. I give them a brief description. I send that to the production company. The production company tweaks it on their end, and then they send to the network. The network green greenlits the projects and then sends it back. And this was a, this was a similar thing, right? Because it was like, I mean, I don't want to bash TV people, but TV people think they know more than the people watching TV. And when we told them, we said, hey, we're going to build this Jeep LJ. And they said, great. So you're going to build that whole thing in one 30-minute episode, right? And I said, that's impossible. You can't build a hardcore throwdown Ultra 4 Jeep in 22 minutes. It's not going to work because it has to be built. It's got to be welded. And then the drivetrain's got to go bend. The axles have to be built. There's all these processes. And their their mind is just stuck on when someone turns on a TV, they want to watch a show start to finish. They want to see the vehicle start and be done in a 30-minute period. And, you know, in my opinion, that's not what people want. They want some information. They want to see something get built. They want to learn something. And they want to come out the back end. So the network pushed back pretty hard on the goat built build because they knew it was going to be four episodes in total. But we pushed right back at them, myself and the production company. They said, no, we we think this is the right way to go. And when the show launched with the goat built LJ, we were the number one episode online. We were the number one episode on their channel. It was the most watched that weekend. We were the top 100 uh, shows on that weekend of all cable TV shows. So 
we proved them wrong and proved ourselves right. So now when we send them lists, they're just like, yeah, build whatever you want. Just, just send us TV. We're good. Just, just give us some cool stuff to put on our channel. I've learned that as well. In the last year doing this show, I came out thinking, you know, 30 minutes, a 40 minute, maybe if we got to an hour, that'd be kind of crazy. An hour would be long. Who's going to sit down for an hour and, and, and listen to myself and somebody in off-road talk? <laughs> Who, who's going to, an hour? I mean, Eric Miller this week was two and a half hours. So I think here's the thing, and, and I don't know how much you looked into this podcast thing before you started it, but if you're familiar with Gimlet Media, Gimlet Media is like the whole podcast scene, long form audio content is huge right now. I don't listen to music in my shop anymore. I listen to podcasts. I listened to your Eric Miller podcast, part of it yesterday and finished it off today. When I was driving to King of the Hammers, I binged every episode up until we hit the lake bed on the drive out to King of the Hammers. People prove what they want and and they want long form audio podcasts. They'll listen to it and and they've proven it. They're listening to what you're putting out and that's that's the most important thing. Yeah, I mean, you're helping me with, you know, some the behind the scenes stuff, but a lot of people, you know, who've asked me like, "Hey, are you going to have ENR? Are you going to have, you know, certain other people on?" I want to know what tech he has. I want to get get it in his head and find out. You know, and they're listening, and they're listening to Miller. They're listening to Blyler. They're listening to Dave Cole. They're listening to for those tidbits, those yep. those nuggets, those the Easter eggs. They're listening for the Easter eggs, so yep. that, that uh, of information that they're like, aha, that's how they did that. Aha, yep. or that's how those guys do it. Or man, I do it this way. I wonder how they do it. And then they find out, and they're like, oh, we do it the same way. Okay. Yep. Or Oh my gosh, I, why didn't I think about that? Yeah, when I listen to Josh Blyler, uh, I and, and I mean, I'm pretty deep in this industry and I know a lot of people. Like I I knew Eric Miller when he was that guy racing that clapped out, you know, Jeep that looked like a beer can on 35s. But I didn't know that that Big B was cutting his pro chassis and and they were so deeply involved with each other. I, I didn't know that. So to me, even I'm deep in the industry and just getting that one little piece of information out makes it even cooler to listen to. And it's just so much fun when, like you said, there's always those little Easter eggs in there and people want to hear them and they want to, they want to find out that kind of stuff. And that's, that's what makes stuff like this. So cool. You know, I think it's great. And then we have that, those discussions on Facebook in the, uh, the talent tank insiders group, literally I named that for the insiders. I mean, but it's everybody, right? It's not top yep. secret. It's like, come, yep. come here, Everyone we'll talk about anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, the old days of on pirate four by four on general chit chat. It'd be, we talk about anything. Yep. The old yellow star. <laughs> yeah, man. Dude, I, I love your business model. I love that you've embraced going to streaming. I love that you've embraced stepping, not necessarily stepping away from the networks, but doing your own thing under just the, this paradigm shift in media and where everything is. It's going away. You know, print media has gone away. We're seeing all these kind of different, you know, outlets showing up and on the scene, this show to be an example, I was naive. I'm going to tell you straight up, I was naive until February on the lake bed, walking into the media tent and all the photographers there, all the media was there checking in, meeting people. And how many people that came over and wanted to have a conversation with me? And I'm, these are people I'm looking up to, you know, like Harry Wagner. I've yep. read his stuff and watched his stuff for, for years. I absolutely love him. And for Harry to come up and be like, Hey, you know, I am Harry Wagner. and want to talk. I'm like, Wow. It was like you, <laughs> you know, I've watched you on TV. I can't tell you how many hours I've, I've, I've seen you and definitely, you know, catching you on power block all those years and you and Jesse on extreme, 
But there we are. I'm trying to order uh, the biscuits and gravy at that coffee truck right outside the media tent. Clutching coffee. Clutching Clutch coffee, coffee every right. morning. <laughs> and uh, you were sta- you walked up behind me and you started the conversation kind of as I turned around, I looked at you. Maybe I said good morning. I don't know. And you're like, hey, why? You know, I'm really liking what you're doing. And I'm like, oh, holy in my head. I said, holy shit in my head. But I was like, wow. Uh boom yeah all right yeah no i do i love it i mean i think it's so here's the thing right i mean ultra four you know for those of us in the mix for those of us like it's like that old saying right you can't see the forest for the trees for those of us in the mix ultra four is like second nature we all know ultra four we all know all the drivers but the reality is it's we're a small group it's not a huge group of racers it's it's like I, I I remember when Dave started the live stream a few years ago, he was still bugging me about getting on TV. And I kept telling him, I'm like, Dave, what were your numbers from your live stream last year? And he'd give them to me. And I'd say, you don't need to be on TV. You need to educate your sponsors that they don't need to be on TV because you're getting to more people through your live stream. Stop spending money on network TV just to keep your sponsors happy so they can say that they're on TV because you know, I know the numbers. I see the numbers every day. We, we subscribe to services. I can pull Nielsen numbers and, and rating numbers. And I know, I mean, everyone still gets excited when they see it on TV. Cause we're still, we're still at that cusp where people are still sort of, you know, they're watching some TV and, and they still get sucked into that. But the reality is, is the numbers that watch uh, King of the hammers on NBC sports versus the numbers that tune in live during the week on the lake bed, it's 10 times as many people are streaming it versus watching it on traditional television. And that's just the numbers. They're not lying. That's a legit statistic. You can look at it and see here. You hit you, by 9 a.m. in the morning. You've reached 100,000 people. You stream it. You watch on traditional TV. It's maybe clicking off in a one hour show. You're clicking off maybe 65,000 viewers. That's not a firm number. That's a statistical number that Nielsen feeds you. It could be 6,000 viewers based on how they run their math behind it. So he, you've got it. You just got to educate the people who are writing you checks that this is a good thing. This whole sponsor thing. And it's the same thing with you. You know, you, you're reaching out to these people. There's people hungry for this information, especially about Ultra Four. And in in reality, I think you're the only sort of podcast that's dedicated to it. And I think it's great. I think, and I think the numbers prove it. Lots of people are listening, and I think that more and more people are going to listen as it goes. And so I said to you, I said, "When are you going to let me interview you?" And you said, <laughs> and you said "Let's do it." Yeah, <laughs> anytime. And then you 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 did a good job of riding me though. Uh, I was not ready to interview you on the time schedule that you wanted to be on. You were wanted to be faster than I was. I was like, ah, I'm not that. I, I'm a little bit further behind. I'm a little bit slower than uh, than you needed me to be. But announcing at King of the Hammers, you've been an announcer for a few years now. We talked earlier about 2020 and what went on with being the most chaotic hammers. The Friday race was just absolutely insane. You guys, as soon as, I can't even tell you, I mean, I'm sure we could go back and count them statistically, you know, I'm going to guess, but it seemed every time a name left your mouth, Ian, as being the new leader within 15 minutes, they were coming off the leaderboard. Yeah, it was, it was the joke inside the live stream booth. Cause so to back up the reason I wanted to do the live streams, I'd never done live before. And I always thought it would be a fun learning experience to try it. So I asked Dave, it was at SEMA like four years ago. And he was like, yep, if you want to do it, you can do it and come on out. And I talked to Shannon and Shannon and I went and she hooked me up and got me out there and, and, and I started doing it. And, and it was just like, I literally was just thrown to the wolves on the first day when at first time I did it, like, here's your headset, have fun. 
And uh, the first year was a little bit tough, but now I, I think we're in a good stride right now. Well, you're and, the pro uh, in in their mind, yeah, though. You know, you know that crew, and in their mind, you're the pro. You shouldn't need yeah. any help, but you're not used to live. You're not used to filling twelve no. hours of of, of oh, air. And, and it's it's it literally is. And I mean, I tried to explain it to people. You literally have you, you are talking in a microphone. The first year was the worst because. You would talk in the microphone and they broadcast it out to the house speakers there in Hammertown. And there was like a two second delay. So every time you talked, you then heard yourself two seconds later and it would mess with your head while you were doing it. So you had to like plug your ear while you did it. So you didn't hear yourself talk or you, I, there's an app on your phone you can download to try and do it. There's, it just messes with you mentally. I can't do it. And then in one ear, you've got Shannon giving you little tidbits of information and what you're going to see on the screen. And then in the other ear, you have the live stream. Tower. They're talking to you. They're saying, hey, uh, we're going to go to commercial in 10 seconds. You know, hey, oh, we lost the camera and whatever. And then you've got Dave running up on stage, just randomly changing the course in the middle of the race. He runs up this year. He did it. He came up. We were in the middle of the race. He runs up and he goes, Chocolate Thunder is a shit show. We are, lap three is not running it. We're bypassing Chocolate Thunder. And then he walks away. And so then we're talking to the live stream chair. The live stream chair knows nothing about this. They're like, what? We're not going to Chocolate Thunder in lap three? All right, we got to move some trailer, move some cameras around and figure out some stuff. And then 10 minutes later, Dave comes up and he's like, nope. Chocolate Thunder's clear. We're running Chocolate Thunder. And you're like, I really don't know where the race course is anymore, but I'm going to tell all these people at home that we're we're going to go up Chocolate Thunder now, I think. I mean, I don't know. It's crazy. It's absolute chaos, but it is. It's 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 so much fun. And like you said, this year it was that as soon as we said there was a race leader, they break. In my opinion as as an announcer in a live stream, this year was the best race. I mean, it was there was one time when we were in in a canyon and we had physical first chasing down the leader, physical leader in a, and we all had camp and there was a camera on it. And then physical third was coming up behind that. And it was all in one shot. It was the most exciting time to be an announcer for that race. A hundred percent, but such a good race this year. Was that the, was that the Cam and Wayne when yeah. Blyler passed them? Yeah. And they were that in was that mess in that mess and it was just and it was we're i mean the cool thing is is we are like i know everyone at home is watching because even before i was announcing i was always i had running in the shop constantly watching there no work got done that day it just played in the background all the time so i know i was on the edge of my seat and i knew everything that was going on behind the scenes who broke when who was actually out but we're not telling them yet you know because we knew that cam was out because the whole laser nut crew had come up and basically said, you know, cams broke. This is what he broke, but we didn't announce it yet because we weren't official. So we had to sit on that. So we already knew that. So we were on the edges of our seat and I, so I can only imagine how great it was to watch at home this year. I think it'd be a great, great one to watch. Well, I said, you know, Dave Cole sold everybody the full seat, but they only needed the front inch. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think this year was great. And then for hours. Yeah. What broke my heart this year in the race was, was Bailey though. I yeah. mean, Cause we, she was, and I told her I stayed, I was spelled off before, when she crossed the finish line. I was out of the booth and I was down and I went down and, you know, I've known Bailey since Bailey was a little kid. Right. I remember when Bailey wasn't even going to be a race car driver. She's going to be a photographer. And that was her thing. Right. And, uh, Bailey and Waylon, cause I've known Shannon since back in the, we rock days back in 2004, 2005 before even 
racing fast was a thing on rocks. So, and then I, I know Brian Cross Campbell really well. And I've known him <laughs> for a while. So I went down there and I saw Tammy down there and she was across the finish line. And I went up and I told her and it was true. She had that race in the bag. I was so excited. I, w- I wanted her to win so bad. I really, really did because I really think I would love to see her win that race. I think she's owed that race. And I think it would be awesome to see a queen of the hammers. And I, I you know, if it's not going to be Jesse, I would love it to be her. And so I, and then just to have something stupid, like a water pump ticket of that race, it just, it broke my heart, broke my heart for her. No questions asked. And her brother, Waylon, you know, Waylon was overheating. You guys, you know, called it on the live show. You know, you could see the steam coming out of the back of his car. And there I am. I'm texting their pit crew saying, Waylon's hot, radio it in. I mean, you could tell it just in the delay from you guys to the live feed, to my text, to Waylon pulling off and knowing he had a problem. It was you guys were doing the, you know, it's kind of like when you watch an NFL game and the wide receiver gets a breakaway pass and he's running towards the end zone. He's not looking over his shoulder. He's looking up at the big screen to see who's close behind him. <laughs> Using technology to your advantage and you guys were yeah. able to call, call some shots there. But yeah, no, I'm fully impressed with, you know, Ricky and yourself and what you guys are able to do in, the, in that live little stand up there and talk nonstop with yeah i mean you you control the tempo you control the tempo of what what goes out on the 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 air and i'm i'm highly impressed with that i think you do an amazing job of it i love i love working with ricky johnson he is so he's so good i mean miles is great and and jim are great miles knowledge of just the the depth of the ultra four racers because he's just been in it for so long playing the game for so long knows everybody knows the backstories all that kind of stuff great pit reporter but when you throw ricky johnson in that mix he is so good at basically bouncing back and forth, getting pulling out little tidbits of information from you, asking me tech questions about certain vehicles. And he and I mean, and that's a true professional, right? He knows the answer. He knows he like that's he right. but but he knows that if he asks me the question, the viewer is gonna hear the answer and 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 that back and forth, it works so well and and it's so good. And you know, that whole live, that whole live stream crew, the crew and the trailer is so good. Here's here's a funny thing that here's another little aside for you, Wyatt, because you like me so much. The crew in that live stream trailer, they are most of them former whitewater kayakers, who a lot of them I kayaked with either them or their friends. Cause I grew up on the Ottawa river, whitewater kayaking. So my very first time when I, when I met those guys, I walked into the booth, more than half of them are Canadian. So we walk in the booth and I get introduced and they're talking and he goes, Oh, you're from Canada. Yeah. I'm Can- Where are you from? Oh, I'm from Smith Falls. Do you know this guy? Yeah, I know this guy. Well, how do you know him? Oh, he's paddle the Ottawa. I work for such and such rafting company in the summer. I was the photography chaser guy. They're like, are you kidding me? I paddle the Ottawa every August. So we, we all like crossed paths in Somewhere. one point in, in our life on a river in Ontario, Canada. And now that guy's talking in my ear, talking about uh, rock racing in, in Johnson Valley, California. And we really haven't given a lot of credit to Jim Marsden. That guy. Wow. I, I'm going to have him on at some point. We got, I got to get Jim, Jim on here. Super accomplished. Might be the best racer out of Europe. The best off-road oh, racer out of Europe. I would, I would say maybe. so. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Definitely, definitely full the one of the most committed. And that's the thing. Like 
He comes over and announces and comes all the way from Europe just to announce, you know, and to me, it's cool having him there just because I get to make fun of, you know, the fact that the steering wheel's on the wrong side of the car where he's from and he calls the hood the wrong part and calls it a boot and, and, and back and forth. We get that back and forth as well. But just having him there as, as, you know, sort of that international contingent, I think that that also works great too. It's just Dave's done really well. And, and the whole, that whole live stream crew's done really well as it's a good group of people to work together. And I think, I think it plays really well on that live stream too. So you'll be back next year announcing. I'll, I'll keep coming back until they tell me I'm not allowed to come back. I, the funny thing is I give Shannon full props. I know you had Shannon on the show and I love Shannon. Shannon Welch. We're talking about Shannon Welch, right? Yeah. 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 yeah Shannon Welch. I give her full props because the first year I went to do it, she said, now, Ian, do you want to stay on the lake bed in an RV or do you want a hotel room in town? And I said, oh, lake bed RV's fine. And she called me back and she goes, I'm going to ask you again, Ian, do you want to stay in the lake bed and RV or a hotel in town? And I said, no, no, RV's fine. And she said, you know, Ian, a lot of the hosts like to stay in, an, in a hotel. It's just 25 minute drive. And I said, no, no, lake RV's fine. RV's fine. She goes, it's not your own RV, Ian. I'm going to ask you again. Do you want to share an RV with five people or do you want your own hotel room? And I'm like, oh, a hotel room would be great, Shannon. So she saved my bacon that first year. And it's like, there's nothing better than being on that stage for eight hours talking and then freezing your butt off and being able to go back and like try to run the hotel out of hot water just to try to get your core temperature up. And I owe Shannon for that 100%. So yeah, but no, I'll be back. I'll come back every year until Dave Cole tells me I'm not allowed to do it because it's so much fun. So much fun. So what's the future hold for you in your shows and what you have going in your goals and places you want to visit or bucket vehicles you want to build and own? What's the future hold for Ian? God, I don't know. I mean, for me, I think, you know, I think at this point I'm in a spot where I always, I joke that 2020 is going to be my year where I finish all my unfinished projects because I've got like five or six on the go that I've kind of been piddling away at. So that's my short-term goal. Long-term goal, I don't know, man. You know, I got a kid off at college. He's studying business and venture capital and, and entrepreneurship studies. And and I, I think for him, I, I think for me right now, my next big long-term goal is to just sort of see where he goes and how I can help him. I've been super fortunate that I've went from mechanic to teacher to TV guy that I never thought would happen. I used to joke when I lived in Kingston, Ontario, working as a mechanic, the most popular show on the time was, was tool was not tool time. Yeah. Tool time. What was it called with Tim Taylor? I used to joke uh, that might, I would say be perfect life. If I could just have a little TV show about tools, you know, have a hot rod in the garage and, you know, have a hot redhead wife. And I've already got all three of those things at this point. So, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it seems silly to wish for anything more. I think, uh, I think I've been super fortunate. And I think if I can just continue down this path and, and make a living doing what I love doing, I, I think I'll just, I'll be happy. I think the big push for me right now, long-term goal is going to be see where my kid goes and sort of see if I can help him chase any dreams that he has, to be honest with you. Well, Ian, I want to apologize right now, right up front, because you sat down for this interview. You have your nice bottle of, uh, I believe it's a whiskey. Chattanooga whiskey 111. That's my go. That's, that's my go-to whiskey right now. hundred percent. And in a glass there, and you didn't get an opportunity to take a single swig the whole time. So here you are. You're <laughs> pouring yourself a little, a little shot, a little shooter. <laughs> take yourself a little sip but ian thank you for coming on thank you for uh enlightening all of us with uh two hours of your evening and 
man, just filling in so many blanks on yourself. And then uh, also, you know, just the insights into what's going on in media and what's going on in off-road media and what's going on with how that plays into our social media. And then also helping all of us take our minds off of everything that's going on with, uh, you know, the shelter in place, stay home orders with COVID. I wish you and all of our listeners all the best of health. I hope we, we all pull through this and the country's better for it and, uh, and off-road's better for it. But, um, thank you. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. It was, it was an absolute pleasure. Why, like I said before, I mean, I, I binge watched or binge listened to all your stuff on the drive out to King of the Hammers. I love what you're doing with this podcast. I think it's so cool to turn that light onto these ultra four guys and girls in this race series and, and the cool mix that you put together on this podcast of the different people, you know, everybody from Cody Wagner and talked about, you know, laser town and, and just, it's those cool little things that I think make it super cool to have, have this sort of out there for people to listen to. And if at the very least take their mind off what's going on right now and think of something else. And we can all, Hey, we can all look forward to King of the hammers, 2021 uh, at the very least we'll all be back on the lake bed again in, in next February for sure. Well, to channel Joe St. Lawrence on this one, it's the rising tide lifts all ships. That's kind of my process, my thought process anyway. And he's the one who said it. You repeated it. I heard it come out of your lips. It resonated with me. And that's kind of what I want to knock out with this podcast is if we can talk about Ultra 4, we can talk about guys that are involved with it, we can talk about our community. And by all of that, it raises all of us. Absolutely, 100%. All right, Ian, thanks for coming on. It was great being here. And we are out. I hope you guys really liked this episode. It was a really fun one to make, as usual. I really have to thank my uh, my three partners on this. Custom Splice, those guys, if you need anything for off-road recovery or even on-road recovery or any projects, please hit Todd and his crew up at uh, customsplice.com. Give them a call. Machining, oh my gosh, Branding Machines, Stan and Brandon, those guys over there in Fort Wayne, Indiana, they do it all. If they can't make it, I don't know who can. If, if you need it made, they will do it. Hit those guys up. They're a big supporter of the Talent Tank, and I, uh, I value their involvement. And then last but not least, Magnitude Performance. Jason Yode and company, they're in Nacogdoches, Texas, and everything that they've done for, for the Talent Tank and getting behind and supporting this, uh, this venture and this project and everything, give them, give them a call for your suspension needs. These guys do magic with springs. And then the parent company, Mass Motorsports Engines, Man, they have uh, they have engines unlocked, hand built, lots of horsepower. They're your guys. Thanks, guys. We'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening and taking a dive into the Talent Tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at the Talent Tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.